All right. Good morning, James Bond fans. Here is uh, Jeff and Josh in Ottawa, Ontario, and Scott in Dumfries, Scotland. We're here to talk about the 13th Bond film in our 14th episode, The World Is Not Enough. Quite right, you are, sir, and good day to you. Good day. How's it doing over there across the pond? Uh, it looks like April, but it's not raining yet, but it's thinking about it. But there's no snow, so it's a win in our eyes. Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, guys, over here, the weather is fantastic. We've had, I mean, of course, I've been on my Easter holidays now for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, in fact. This is the end of it, and the weather has been great ever since I got off school and that's never happened. Usually we got a couple of days here, a couple of days there, but it's been a proper two week stretch of nice temperatures. It hasn't been perfect, but it's been nice. And the last three days have been sunny and 20, 21 degrees. Like I'm talking nice. proper fake summer stuff, you know? Yeah. We're kind of in getting close to that mode. Remember yes. when I visited you for your act? No, well, I came for your uh, wedding when I was best man. Yes, indeed. Um, the whole time, random and most rare Scottish weather you could ever have. Yeah, it was a really great stretch. And it's kind of like that now, only it doesn't have that August heat and haziness, you know? I kind of regret it a little bit. I know you guys probably loved it for your wedding and everything like that. But when I went to Isle of Skye, we were expecting to see this clothed and mist kind of mysterious island I've heard about so much. But it was clear as day when I was there. I don't think that's entirely true because you got a picture, I think. Uh, okay, take, up in the hills in, there. Up in the hills, like, that's quite nice. The red, what is it, the red mountains or something like that? or I don't know. I've never been to Sky. So it's the one that you see in uh, Prometheus. Prometheus. Oh, yeah. In the opening of the movie Prometheus. I love uh, that opening. Yeah. <laughs> I, that, I don't, that doesn't help me identify the name of it. <laughs> no, it, no, it, it doesn't. Fair. It well, doesn't. Yeah. Just Google Prometheus opening. Come on, yeah. man. It's just, it's just a name drop of a cool place I've been. It, that was the whole purpose of that whole exercise. It's true. Yeah, it was, right. Well, look, uh, let's talk playoff hockey because it's important. Oh, boy. What's Is going on? I, I, I read that the Calgary Flames and the Tampa Bay Lightning, who, of course, have both exited... Or it's the only time in NHL history when the top seeds, one and one, have gone out in the first round. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know that stat, but I, it's true. I mean, they, they've gone like, man, the, the top seeds have gone the way of the Dodo this uh, <laughs> this playoff, and it's crazy. I don't even know where to like put, put your my, money. place I my, know, place I my bets. Even, not that I bet, but I wouldn't know now. I'm, I'm hoping for the Jets. I want a Canadian team. I'm sorry, but I don't consider the least a Canadian team. Like Jon Snow... <laughs> I know nothing about hockey, but I will say that Don Cherry would be a great Bond villain. <laughs> Don Cherry would be a great Bond villain. Yeah, he would. I, yeah. I, I feel like you wouldn't have to guess what he's going to do because he's going to tell you, even if you don't want to hear it, <laughs> yeah. what's going to happen. I swear yeah, that he yeah. was one of those uh, zamboni hockey thugs that Chrisatos hired to kill Bond in uh, Three Your Eyes Only, and he's out for revenge now. Well, do you know what? what? He, he, he might have been because he was a hockey thug. When he, as a player, he was, he was a rough, he was. A rough he was fighting kind of guy. Yeah. yeah, ice dogs or something, wasn't he, it? I, I don't even think. I think he played less than like twenty games in the NHL. He did. He was all all about the AHL. He just couldn't quite get a break. And the way he tells the story, I've, I'm reading his uh, his his book right now. Actually, oh, Josh, yeah, that's the book. it was I your, your yeah, yeah, mom yeah. and your mom and dad gave it to me. BFG. Oh yeah, 
remember uh, that. They sent it to me. So I've just been kind of reading that at my you know bedside table and little bits I'm picking up here and there. He uh, he probably could have cut it. He would have made it, but he had an argument with one of the coaches or something like that. It's, it's well, weird. I, Scott likes biographies. Yeah, send him that. That was kind of my response to her question, my uh, mother's question. Well, I was going to say, yeah, he didn't – I think he played – was it less than 10 games in the NHL? He was – because I think the, there was a book – Oh, it wasn't that book. There was another book about sort of basically the guys that, that played like one game or and, and one and done in the NHL. And it was mm-hmm. kind of an interesting book. And they did – and Don Cherry, I think, has mentioned it because he played very few. But obviously he had a lasting effect on the NHL because he actually ended up becoming a coach. And then obviously, as we all know him, as a talking head for CBC on Hockey in Canada for years and years. Mm. And before but, that, uh, he did The Grapevine. Which is a show. Right. I, yeah, I wish point. I yeah. had seen that live, but I. Oh man, that, uh, I read it yeah, first. and I and he even they even had it on the radio for a bit too. A couple of years ago, it was That's him right. and uh, oh my gosh, the, that that guy who was a long running uh, CBC talking head was Brian Brian Williams. No, yeah, yeah it was Brian, Brian Williams. Yeah, yeah, Brian Williams. There you go. Yeah. Well, here's a question, guys, uh, to segue into our discussion today. If the world is not enough, was an NHL playoff team? What Ooh. seed would they be, 1 to 16? Oh. What uh, seed would it be? I think it would be 12. I, I, can't, yeah. see it. I can't see it rising I, above 12. I was going to say between, yeah, I was going to say between like 10 and like 14, somewhere around there. I was going to say if there was going to be a Bond movie and Don Cherry was in it, I think it would be called uh, Dress to Kill. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this isn't helping any of our listeners, I guess, who don't know who Don no, Cherry is. But well, just just go clean. check him out. Go check out Don Cherry, uh, Hockey Night in Canada, and you'll see what he, what we're on about. Any of the hockey fans in the U.S. will probably be familiar with his rock oh, and yeah. shock. They will videos. be. Oh, yeah. You're yep. always in the bargain bins at your, like, uh, well, here at Giant VHS. Tigers, uh, what have you. Um, you might find them at your Walmart bargain bins, that sort of thing. Yep. We have Walmart here, too, but yep. not to the extent that you guys have. No. So it sounds like the way you were, uh, well, and I appreciate the, you know, the uh, going from the Don Cherry to the the world is not enough. It was clunky. Uh, yeah, no, it was all right. It worked. Um, like the movie. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think we're you'll see. I think we're pretty I'll, much uh, in, in agreement. Well, I think we're kind of in agreement of where it stands, but we'll go. We'll, yeah, I'm interested to hear everyone's take. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot to talk about, regardless of whether we think we all know where we lie with the film. Yes. There's a lot yes. to talk about. And the critical yeah. reception was quite interesting for me to look at. Uh, you know, guys, just a little caveat here. I suppose it's it's more a note. I've got... Caveat or caviar? A caveat, <laughs> thank you. Um, we'll get to caviar later, but, you know, yeah. I'm old Sour school. Cream? I'm old school when it comes to research, when it comes to the teaching and all that stuff. So I got papers here and I, I'm not one of these you know get my two computer screens up and file through my things as I'm reading so I've got I got about 11 pages of notes there all things together and if you hear me rattling pages don't be alarmed okay uh it's not oh, that's okay that was me yeah. last week because my computer was overheating so I literally had like pages of notes okay so cool. we, ta- we talked about last week about uh in the world of James Bond about uh Tanya Mallet and uh Nadja oh yes Nadja Sadim is that her name mm-hmm. yeah Anyways, we talked a lot about, you know, Nadja and Tanya's passing last week. And um, one thing I didn't mention, too, was that Shane Rimmer, who, who I mentioned before on the series, uh, he also passed away. And you did a, and you, and, and you uh, linked a really nice bio on him on her Facebook page. So um, the viewers will get to see about more about Shane Rimmer uh, f- from that. Uh, and we haven't even hit, like, you know, his main two films, uh, 
or well, I guess his main one would be the Spy Who Loved Me. But he also has a bit of a role in You Only Live Twice as well. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Do you remember him in Diamonds Are Forever? Vaguely. He's one of the guys that uh, uh, Willard White yells at. Is he? Yeah. I thought he was the guy who, at the airport who met Peter Frank slash James Bond and talked. It was like the Felix Leiter guy. No, of course he wasn't. What am I saying? No, 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 no. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. Answer that question for yourself. I did. Thank you for uh, <laughs> indulging me as I went through the <laughs> neural pathways of my own brain. Actually, I think Shane Rimmer could have been a good Felix Leiter, in my opinion. Yeah. Why not? You know, I mean, there's, there's some that, good Felixes. And so that, maybe that's a what if. Maybe that's for a what if episode. Yeah. I mean, it would be with the continuity anyways, yeah, that, which they've completely failed at in regard to Felix Leiter. <laughs> Anyway, let's get into this, boys. The World Is Not Enough, 1999. Where were you? What are your first impressions of this one, Jeff? Uh, well, I don't think I saw it in the theaters, but I definitely saw it shortly after, probably uh, VHS. I definitely remember watching this. I liked it, and it was a good... And for the time, you know, VHS, I don't think I was watching it on DVD yet. I, had, I don't think I got a DVD player yet at that point. So it was VHS. I'm pretty sure I either watched it with my friend Steve... Uh, or at home with my parents, but uh, I, I liked it, and it was a uh, it was a you know a movie for the times. You had Sophie Marceau that we're going to mention with her. Uh, we're going to obviously talk about her later, uh, but obviously this was kind of like another sort of big uh, west you know uh, western film for her um, Hollywood film. Uh, I know that I, I did enjoy it at the time. I thought it was really great. I was always a big fan of. Uh, I kind of grew up with the just when I started to actually watch. The films when I was sort of like of an age that I was really paying attention to the Bond films, it would have been the Brosnan era. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, around that time, I was actually watching the reruns of, um, oh, what was the show he was on in 82? The um, Remington Steel. Sorry, yeah. Uh, so I, I really enjoy Brosnan. I'm a big fan of Brosnan, so I know that I really enjoyed this movie. Uh, and I mean, when I was watching films like then, I wasn't, you know, looking into uh, – you know, the actual, like, how the film was done. The mise-en-scene. There you go, the mise-en-scene, as the French say. Uh, I'm sure that Sophie would say it better than us, but you get it. But no, I, I, I know that I enjoyed it as a movie, but uh, today will be different. Mm. I mean, I still enjoyed it, but you'll see. <laughs> Josh? Uh, yeah, I remember seeing that in the theater, actually, with some of my friends when I was living in Peterborough, in my last leg of high school before I moved to Ottawa. And, uh, you know, we were all big... A lot of my friends who were into Bond, they got through. They, they got into Bond through osmosis through me because first there was a GoldenEye video game, mm -hmm. and then I entered. Then I got back into the Bond series, and then, then I reintroduced a lot of them to the Bond series. So it was kind of a thing that I spread around a bit. Um, probably. Were, were your mom and dad still holding hostage videotapes from Granny O at that <laughs> no, point? No, that part. Was, <laughs> okay. No, I was much. I think, <laughs> I think they established me as a much more mature individual by 1999. <laughs> I just had to ask, you know. I didn't All know. I I understand. Absolutely. I, I was wondering if you bred the, the, the James Bond fandom within your friends so that you could then take advantage of their collections because you weren't allowed to your own? No, no, not at all. I, uh, by that point, I had, I had been to Aunt Barb's wedding and reconnected with you and saw all the Bond films you had. And then I went out and pretty much finished the collection. Of so, course, yeah. yeah. So by that yeah. point, I was a big GoldenEye 64, oh, man. overall 64 fan. Uh, and then I was also a, a, a very strong Bond fan by that point. So it, Rules Not Enough was, was a really good time because that one I got to see with a lot of my friends. And I went more than once in the theater, actually. I think I went twice uh, with different groups of people. So that was really cool. I remember, you know, I was being a huge fan of Braveheart at the time. And uh, I had a crush on Sophie Marceau. So I was pretty Ooh. excited that she was a Bond villain. I was even Even then, I was like... 
I don't care about Denise Richards. Just put Sophie Marceau back on the screen. Well, <laughs> I guess, yeah, in some ways, yes. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I just think I had a bit more of a sophisticated era oh, no, no. than some young men in my age at that time, I suppose. It's possible. Well, I want to pick up on a couple of things you said there, Jaybird. The first of them is the GoldenEye 64 video game. I mean, we've, we've referenced it before on the show. It's, it was such a huge thing, and I'm sure it bred and built We should have a GoldenEye 64 fandom. podcast. Uh, I'll let you do that one, but I, w- I just want to set the record straight on this point. Um, sure. Maybe an episode on it, Josh, but when I used to visit you up in Ontario, in Peterborough and beyond, and you would come down to Newfoundland or wherever the hell I was living at the time, Fredericton or whatever, whenever we would play this game, you know, it was always great. It was always tight. But truthfully, um, no matter how much shtick I used to give or lies I used to tell, I think you were the better player. And I would like everybody to know that you were wow, the better player. Uh, I always kicked your ass at Star Fox. I mean, let's oh, call yes. that it. Star Fox was hard. Man. Star Fox was hard, but I, I definitely agree. You were better with that. In my the multiplayer, oh, you know the multiplayer was fun though. Yes. Well, you know what? I don't think I ever played the Star Fox on 64. I played the Star Fox on like Super Nintendo. Yeah. And that's tough too. Wait. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Super Nintendo one was pretty cool, but, but uh, the one sixty four was pretty. Oh no, mind-blowing. it was good. I don't know if I ever really played it that much. But it, it was a great testament, though. I think to uh, to our relationship that we could play as much of that as we did and not really fall out. You know. I remember playing Star Fox and a uh, sixty four or Goldeneye or what it was, and my dog, my late dog at the time, sneezed behind you or something, oh, you, and, 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 and like knocked oh. you out. <laughs> yes, I do remember that Zeppelin. Yes, it was like <laughs> Pittsburgh Steel, man. That dog's head, that skull was hard as rock, and it did oh, take me out. And I had a, and it the same. It was not the same fucking day that it ate my sandwich as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, oh yeah. Absolutely. Zeppelin, as he was named, is a Weimariner for you. For you. Yeah. For you. A great you. dog. A great dog. It's funny that he, you know, like his name is Zeppelin, and you know his breed is like you know the, the Duke of Weimar, right? So the Weimar Republic and. Hindenburg, I just thought that was a historical <laughs> reference. Mm-hmm. And I like the Hindenburg, he did have a lot of gas too. So, <laughs> well, in his later years, yeah. And then also, sure. like, and also, like, I, I guess you know, he was kind of a bit aggressive, but not in, in a bad way or anything. But he sneezed, and uh, his skull collided into yours, and he dazed you a little bit as you slipped some to the floor, mm-hmm. and uh, and then he, <laughs> then he ate your sandwich, which was on the table next to you. Well, if you're not gonna eat it. I know. It's like, do you know what it was though? Like it's all about observation and knowing your environment. Like this dog, right? Uh, And and all dogs, I suppose, and cats to a certain extent, they understand their environment and they read the signals. They learn human condition. And Zeppelin knew that it was a one-two punch. He knew that it was knock me to the floor, steal my sandwich and walk out of the room like he had done nothing. The dog just had a really clear, advantageous understanding of his environment. And he was also ballsy. That was that. Took, took so what you're saying is he, he cased the joint. So he you're cased. saying that like he directly, he probably went into the kitchen, put some, you know, pepper on his nose mm-hmm. and then like waited behind you. <laughs> Saw what the sandwich was. No, I don't perfectly. think he's part of, I don't, I don't think he's capable of that kind of meditation. No. But I'd like to see that. It's I'm just too, saying too that. neurotic to like I, plan that ahead. But I, I'm just saying I would love to see. Unfortunately, I never met your dog, but I've known him through these stories. And let me tell you, I'm pretty sure I projected some kind of liquid out of my nose when Josh was telling me this story because <laughs> I was mid-drinking of something. Yes. And I was like, are you kidding me? And I just had the greatest like visuals in my head. Oh, man, that was hilarious. Josh does tell a good visual story, though. He does. Yeah, also, he always has. A lot of Josh's visual stories, like uh-huh. that I have witnessed. <laughs> yeah, tell us that we've great. been there. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Ah, uh, well. Right, guys. Uh, the world is not enough. Okay, thank you for your your pieces on that. I I remember watching this film. I was 
in my first semester of university abroad. Uh, I was away at Mount Allison, so I watched this in the cinema by my lonesome, I believe. Or maybe I had Kier with me. Maybe Kier and I went together, or Jay. It awesome. might have been might have been Kier or Jay that went to see this with me. Uh, mm-hmm. I know Jeff, you don't know those guys, but Josh, you certainly do. I don't. And yeah, anyway. I watched it in a little cinema there in Sackville, and I remember feeling kind of, okay, this is all right about it. Although and then Josh you texted me saying, yes. Yeah, I'll, I must have I'll said let to you. you say it. I, I don't recall it, my exact words. All I know is that for ransom, you're holding my opinion on Apted. <laughs> you know, I have nothing bad to say about Apton. I'm going to go through a bit of his uh, his history here. Mm-hmm. So um, it's not it's not a bad call. I mean, in in in, in a sense, and I don't think Apted is really the villain in, in terms of some of the the quality the poor quality of World's Not Enough. So no, but we'll 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 get into it. In fact, Josh, is it time to open Cubby's Corner on the World Is Not Enough? Yes. Uh, well, Cubby's posthumous corner in this particular case because now because Cubby's been dead since after Goldeneye. So we're dealing with uh, Michael G. Wilson taking the helm with uh, his daughter, Barbara Broccoli. Of course, Michael G. Wilson is his stepson um, from a previous marriage. Um, but uh, Barbara Broccoli, um, she is, uh, of course, I guess the heir to the throne, you could say. Sure. Um, anyway, so the budget of World Is Not Enough is $125 million. Directed by Michael Apted. He's best known for the Up series in the 60s originally. Um, but famously, he is a director of Coal Miner's Daughter. Ooh. So Sissy's Basic starring Loretta Lynn biopic. Another biopic he's known for is Gorillas in the Mist with um, Sidney Sigourney Weaver about Diane Fossey. Gorky Park, famous novel that was adapted, um, Amazing Grace, and he also uh, worked on several episodes of HBO's oh, Rome. That's cool. And for that, he's also been known as a very prolific playwright in the London stage and a stage director. When you say he Which worked are... on Rome, did he direct them? I think he did direct. Yeah. All right. Yeah. What um, year? What years was that? So like Rome two, was like 2005 to 2007 or something like that, because yeah. it's only two seasons yeah. long. Yes. Yeah. Because they had that one season that was really over it was big budget because it was HBO and BBC working together. Right. Yeah. And then what happened is that when they started doing season two, BBC pulled out because it was too much money. But it was too bad because the DVD sales in response was really huge yeah. in Rome and it could have yeah. gone on for, for a while. Um, the but, DVD box sets were awesome too. Like just the the, the actual quality of the box sets. Yeah, I remember, I remember those box sets. Yeah, and then of course they had that rush. They basically took three two seasons and rushed them into one season, yeah. and that was the, the the second season. Yeah. For those who haven't seen it, uh, Rome is a is a, was a is a great historical. Yeah, it's really good. S- s- series. I mean, there's historical inaccuracy in it for sure, oh, yeah. but the way that they combine the their story they're telling and the history is so well done, and it's it's a really great watch. And you'll see like actors you know who are pretty, pretty uh, prominent now, like Kieran Hines and Tobias Menzies and oh, Mark, even and James uh, Purfoy. I was gonna say because he was also uh, rumored to be a James Bond at one point, right? He was. Yeah, Purfoy, exactly. Let's bring it back to the James Bond. <laughs> yeah, if you like Rome, if you, also if you like if you think you know Purfoy's a good Bond, I recommend checking out his. Uh, it's a series. It's on Netflix uh, in Canada, anyways. Um, called Happen Leonard. So good. So good. It's based off a series of mystery so novels, and and, and 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 Purfoy actually plays like a like a country bumpkin. Yeah, from Texas, and you would have no idea that he is, you know, you know that he not. 
from Texas in this show. Yeah, it's, it's really good. It's really oh, fun yeah. series, but it gets really dark kind of in moments yeah, too, it's but it's, dark. it's entertaining. But anyways, yes. Do you know, I was just thinking, you know, listening, it doesn't say very much, does it, that in this particular episode, our... <laughs> We've talked about so much that we've needed to come back to get to this film. We have to stay on topic. Oh, yeah. We're going back. We're we're going into it. We're going into it. So Michael opted. He was chosen because Broccoli and Wilson believed he could get strong performances for the female leads. At first, Broccoli wanted to cast Peter Jackson. uh, Well, not not cast, but hire Peter Jackson for for the director because she saw his heavenly creatures. Mm. Now, this is a film about a famous murder in New Zealand back in like in the 70s or something like that or the fifth or something where two girls uh killed their parents or killed one person's parents or something and, and they were kind of like supposedly like lovers or something like that or two teenage girls it started um kate winslet and melanie uh, linsky M- M- melanie linsky who everyone knows is like charlie's uh the crazy uh neighbor on two and a half men on two and a half men yeah but anyways but then she saw his movie the frighteners and that turned her off completely, so she dropped Jackson. Oh. <laughs> Jackson, as we know, would later direct The Lord of the Rings. He did okay. Yeah, and I guess he didn't need Barbara Barclay anymore. Um, <laughs> Principal photography went from January to June 1999. The story concept of the oil industry came from the Barbara Bro- from Barbara Broccoli actually wa- watching Nightline and seeing <laughs> some news story on there and you know running with that and, and about the conflict in the oil industry. Screenwriters Jack Purvis and Robert Wade were hired on to flesh out the story. Uh, this was their first Bond film, and they would actually stay with Bond up until the present now, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Broccoli liked the idea of Electra as a villain, stating that Bond thinks he's found Tracy, but she's really Blofeld. I thought that was a prominent point to make and made me think mm. about the relationship that Bond, like, why was he so, you know, into her and in the film and why he was able to like let her get away and kind of believe her when she's lying to him and stuff like that. And I guess you kind of see that Tracy dynamic, I suppose. Right. Yeah, Um, I guess so. Bruce Fairstein was worked who worked on the previous bond film tomorrow never dies was then called in to flesh out bond. Additionally, Michael Apt's wife did a rewrite of the screenplay to make the female characters come out more strongly. Did she? I don't know. Um, Desmond Llewellyn's last film, of course, um, he officially retired on screen, as we saw, and he was replaced by John Cleish's R. Llewellyn actually passed away shortly after. He was killed in a car crash at 87. Ooh. I mean, that's just, wow. Um, Sad. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, we're looking for Roger Moore, you know, like, he passed away of cancer, right? As a very, you know, some kind of disease you would die from at you a very old that, age. Yeah. You, know, you know what I mean? Exactly, because he but, was, yeah. But, like, Desmond Llewellyn, I mean, that guy seemed like he could just go on forever, you know? Mm-hmm. It is unfortunate. Although he was looking kind of a little bit, a little old by by the rules on yeah, enough. Yeah, but he, he, I mean, really, I mean, he was still the same character. You I mean, yeah, he just on the outside. He you was know, kind he of was, the same was... character, but I think in a way he was just kind of like, kind of like, I don't think he took the whole situation seriously like he would have in the past. I think nah, he was maybe. just there as kind of like yeah. a, a nostalgia point. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that because the the, no. Q, no. the Q scenes don't even really need to be there in terms of yeah, exactly. The, we could just be told. Data dumped yeah. Q Branch did this. So it's really just a token, a nod, a respectful thing yeah. that they're in there in the first place. And fans do really, really like them. Oh, I understand. They, 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 but they, I, I would argue, though, that like the Q appearances in the Moore, in the Moore era and in the Connery era, I think were... They were important. They, they were important to the story. And, 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 and I thought that they were more original 
moments that didn't mm-hmm. feel like you know you're you're out of the film just seeing the nostalgia of, of Q. Yes. You know what I mean? You're right. Yeah. 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 Uh, French actress Sophie Marceau, best known for playing Princess Isabella in Braveheart, was cast as femme fatale Electra King. American actress Denise Richards from Starship Troopers and Wild Things was cast as nuclear physicist Christmas Jones. <laughs> it just sounds ridiculous. Oh, it's just like, wow. It, it is. It's, I never think you, I'd stop laughing at some point. But Yeah. It's like Denise Richards. I was on Starship Troopers to find out to James Bond. The reason why that she was cast for that role. Like, I'm, I'm well, just... well, allow me to interject, gentlemen. I rewatched the film following the director's commentary for this particular reason. I wanted to get his point of view on or about Denise Richards, whether her, her hiring, her performance, just something to explain how she got into this picture. Now, when the time is right for me to go into that, I will. Okay, okay. okay. We'll yeah. stand by with your comments. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Please do. Uh, Scottish actor Robert Carlyle, whom people knew from the full Monty and Train spotting, was cast as the anarchist Renard. Robbie Coltrane would reprise his GoldenEye role as retired KGB-turned-legitimate business owner, Valentin Zukowski. Love him. Fans of the Showtime series Banshee might pick out Ulrich Thompson as King Security Head and Renard henchman Davidoff. Thompson played the villain in the now-finished serial, and uh, if you've seen the movie Centurion by Neil Marshall, he also plays the King of the Picks. Um, He's a very good actor, actually. Yeah. Um, But he's kind of, you you can blink and miss him in uh, The World's Not Enough. British musician Goldie, I guess he was a person of his time. I don't really recall his music or anything like that. He played the role of Bull or Mr. Bullion, Valentin's traitorous bodyguard. Yeah, he was a popular guy over here he at was. the time. I remember, I remember seeing him uh, and I'd be like, oh yeah, Goldie. Like, because he, he was sort of like for that hot minute, he was, well, I was he a rapper that. or was he? No, no, R&D? he was like, no, I think he was like techno and stuff, like prodigy kind of thing. Yeah, okay, so more of yeah, more of that ilk. And yeah. he was at, for he was at. <clears throat> he was hot for about as long as Vanilla Ice was, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Cooled down quickly. <laughs> I wonder if he sold his teeth. Yeah. After... <laughs> I would. Yeah. yeah after yeah. after Valentin shot him out, shot them out of his face. <laughs> do you think? Do, do you think that whole? Do you think his whole teeth thing was that a nod at Jaws? Uh, I think that was a nod at uh, Goldie. I don't, I don't know, man. I I reckon it was. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Patrick has it's a combination of Oric Goldfinger and. Uh, Jaws, yeah, that's a good point. I'm just being a feces disturber, so it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, Italian actress Maria Grazia Cucinata, best known to world audiences from Il Pastino, was cast as the Cigar Girl for the opening sequence. Cigar Girl is apparently um, the only thing she's known as. However, Dude. there was a, um, a, an official novelization of The World Is Not Enough, and a scene that was cut from the movie was, uh, was a Cigar Girl talking to Renard. And I think that would have been a bit significant, actually. But... Um, her name in the book was Juli- was Julietta da Vinci. Ooh. Just thought it'd be finally interesting. Um, John Cleach was cast as R, Q's replacement, once he has retired. And that's really the main cast. The film is shot on location in Bilbao, Spain. That's the Guggenheim Museum in the background, uh-huh. that weird kind of amorphous shape you see, like when he's crossing the street. That's the Guggenheim. Um, Baku, Azerbaijan, Istanbul, Turkey... Uh, where you see the Maidens Tower, the Bosphorus Harbor, uh, London at Vauxhall, Thames Estuary, Greenwich, which were where the Millennium Dome was, um, which is at the end of the, pre- the pre-titles sequence where Bond is rolling down in pain. Uh, that's the Millennium Dome. Uh, th- those were all shot on location. Uh, the Caucasus chase sequence, however, was filmed in Chamonix, France, and the Kazakhstan nuclear site was filmed in Navarre, Spain. 
Electro's Baku residence is actually in Istanbul, and the interior sets were filmed at Pinewood, and the 007 stage was used for Zukowski's caviar factory, built entirely as a set piece. So that was not on location. All of that was a huge set meant to be deconstructed as it was on film. The underwater submarine sequences were filmed per usual in the Bahamas, and the temporary MI6 headquarters was filmed in and out of Eileen Donan Castle, where I've been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, rec- I recognize the hall of Alan Donin, uh, when in, in the film. I remember walking in there and they showed us where like the murder holes were, where people would, right above the, the main hall, they would peer down into the stones and spy on people and stuff. And Pretty cool place. If you ever have a chance to go to, um, uh, I guess, towards the west of, of the Scottish Highlands, just before you get to Skye, uh, check out Alan Donin Castle. It's, 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 it's pretty awesome. Did you, did you see any Highlanders with flamethrowers? <laughs> No, no, no Highlanders with flamethrowers. Mm. Also, the castle is prominent in um, uh, the film The Highlander as well, just Ooh. for those who might remember it. The Caviar Factory um, was designed by Peter Lamont, as, long, all, all, as well as all the, all the production design. He seems to be the Ken Adam of the Brosnan era and beyond. Until, until Dennis Gassner took over uh, with Quantum of Solace. Ooh. The director of photography, Adrian Biddle, I thought he did a pretty good job. Um, cool the, at 14 minutes, uh, t- the world's not enough pre-credit sequence is to date the longest in the franchise. The sequence was supposed to end with the Bilbao window jump and go straight to the opening titles with return to the MI6 bombing and boat chase to occur after the song. But the producers thought that it was a mediocre opening sequence Ooh. on its own, so the shooting script was rewritten. What do you guys think? Do you think after the whole Bilbao sequence that it would have been a good way to go into the opening titles and then do everything else afterwards? Would that have connected the narrative more strongly? I think maybe. I, I would have liked... I think... I, well, I, I don't know. I don't know. It was long, though. It was long. But I, yeah. I know why they didn't do it. it. It wasn't just a producer's call. It was a producer's call, but after test audiences. Test audiences did not like that yes. ending of Bond just slinging himself across or over the balcony and down the bank. They wanted good, something else. Yeah, as good a scene as it is. You know what I mean? Yeah, I liked uh, it. Yeah. I, I did like that scene, but but, I mean, yeah. jump, but jumping from the building of like a Swiss banker's office for like about what six, about eighty feet or so, I guess doesn't have the same no. rat, you know razzatazz as like no. the Tomorrow Never Dies opening sequence with the jet fighter, yeah. or you know with the with with the dam jump in, yeah, exactly, uh, in, exactly. in Golden Eye, right? Hmm. I guess it's all about what they want, what what kind of tone they're wanting to go for. If they know they got that scene in the pocket, it's just as well they take it out for the pre-title, I guess, because you know the, the film isn't going to run or play like a From Russia with Love. So why have a soft title for a film that's actually explosive and dynamic and nonstop? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's, once we get to the From Russia with Love, uh, I think the opening sequence is quite um, extraordinary compared to other Bond films. So I'm curious to see you know how that how that goes down in our mm-hmm. reviews. Um, so the, the rules on enough also ended the fil- the three film contract between Eon productions and BMW. We have the Z three appearing in golden eye, uh, the Z five zero IL in tomorrow never dies. And then the Z eight in the rules on enough. Now you said you had some information on the, on the Z eight. Now it was funny cause you, you, you collect these cool bond cars that you were showing me online the other day. I don't collect, them, I don't collect them. Although, you know, the, you collect the magazines for them that come with the toys. <laughs> no, 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 no. 
No, I collect the car. I have a, I have a collection of them. Yes, but I don't, I don't go searching out for these cars. He just bought them all. He got them all in one shot. I got them in one shot because it was a good deal, and I was interested in in having some more information on the vehicles. But it turns out that, uh, yeah, I mean the the cars are pretty cool. Yeah, but anyways, he has like the it's the Z8, but like and and it's so well so well d- 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 detailed the uh, the car and with Bond in the front seat and everything, but then it also has like the buzz, the, the chainsaws from the King helicopters about to cut into the back of it like it does in the movie. It's really cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a great car. It is a good car and it looks it looks a little more retro, you know? I mean, uh, Presley, Elvis Presley had one of these, well, at that time it was the BMW 507, but he had that, you know, 50 years before this film, you know? Wow, I know Elvis Presley had a BMW. Yeah, he did. Does yeah. it seem like, like a car that he would drive? I don't know. I just, well, I mean, he spent time in Germany, you know, during the... Oh, yeah, the that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's true, that's true. <laughs> Interesting facts. Um, David Arnold delivered a second Bond score using lyricist Don Black to write the words for The World Is Not Enough. The title song was performed by Shirley Manson of Garbage. This was the first Bond film to be officially released by MGM after years of United Artists being the principal right. distributor. Yeah. So that said, um, those are the details I was able to find on The World Is Not Enough. Um, the one detail I was unable to really go into, as we were discussing earlier, was uh, the hiring you know, the casting of some, of some people. You know, like I wasn't able to find out why Sophie Marceau particularly was chosen. Maybe because of her, I guess because of Braveheart and this kind of the, slight, the slow international stardom that she was building because of that. Um, but uh, and Denise Richards, I guess she was cast on the basis of, I guess, her popularity. And since I think this film tried to play both worlds here, like the Bond crowd and also, you know, general audiences, maybe Denise Richards was kind of like the American Bond girl they were looking for at the time. I think you're right. I do feel as though you're right. She came out of a pretty strong performance. uh, I mean, when I say strong performance, I mean, you know, what the film needed and what audiences liked in Starship Troopers, which does remain a pretty good flick. And it's fun. It it's is fun. Satire. Yeah, it's yeah, it is fun. And I mean, it's it's got some intelligence about it. Robert it, A. Heinlein, I'm, I'm sure, is responsible for all that. But yeah, but it doesn't matter. I mean, the filmmakers made the decision to to adapt, right? So yeah. some someone's got a brain to keep I've, that going. The director of Starship Troopers, I believe, that was Paul Verhoeven. Yeah, it was. And the score by Basil Poldoris is Poldoris. great. Oh, yeah, Conan. Yeah, like I find that like Verhoeven in general. I'm saying this as a film fan. I think he gets underrated a lot. He has some really good films out there. Robocop is an amazing oh, yeah. satire. Yeah, it's great. Like, yeah, uh, and Verhoeven does a great job with that. And good Polidori score. Um, another one really good too is uh, it's all about the Dutch resistance. It's called Black Book, oh, starring yeah. Carice Van Houten, and uh, everyone knows her as Melisandre from Game of Thrones, but. It's a really good film, and uh, it's a it's a kind of a personal film for Verhoeven. So I do recommend pe- people check that out. Ooh. Didn't Verhoeven also do Basic Instinct? Or he, he did. Oh. He did Basic Instinct. That's right. Have I got that right? Or is it Fatal Attraction? Nope. No, you got it. It's okay. uh, he, you know, he he did that movie as well, and that's also a classic, right? Yeah. So he became very known for these kind of like these classy, sleazy kind of st- stories. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, anyway, I think you're right about Denise Richards because she had just come off of Starship Troopers. And, of course, she also did Wild Things where she showed her ability to be a vixen. And, you know, I guess also uh, she was well seen and well known in the public eye. At that time. Yeah, at exactly. that time. At so that time. She was kind of, yeah, she was, uh, I guess it sounds rude, but like Flavor of the Month. Yeah. But, you know, sure. it works. And same with Sophie Marceau, I think, because, again, she was she was doing – bigger and bigger sort of like Hollywood films, whereas a, a, compared to where she was doing a lot of like French 
films and European yeah. films, and then she was getting noticed, and then they kind of. I think it was a it was a good casting for Sophie because she's a strong actress, uh, and she has a you know uh, an exotic accent. So those kind of things would definitely. Uh, be a positive for like yeah. She a, fits very well female in female Bond role. Yeah, she fits know? very well into the role of people like you know Jane Seymour. Well, even more so Jane Seymour, like Claudine Auger. Uh, Ooh, any of those kind of like those kind of actresses that they would cast in the Bond films in those days, right? Yeah, I mean this character has a bit more agency than those in the '60s, but oh, hundred percent, hundred In fact, yeah, well, Denise Richards is more. Her character is really more yeah. of that sort of '60s girl in the sense that she. Um, you know, she's very traditional. She's bedded for the sake of pleasure, not for any... Like, you can't conceive Bond and her having any plausible relationship. Right. But whereas some of these other Bond girls, leading or followers or secondary, you can kind of imagine that, okay, I can see where there's some love there, maybe some attraction, maybe this could go somewhere. Those are always the relationships that I like the most. I'm remembering Craig and Vesper. You know, I, I mean, I, okay, it was a little quick to where they got to love, but I yeah. imagine the two of them... Having a relationship, I can imagine Maud Adams and Roger Moore's Bond having a relationship in Octopussy. I can imagine Connery, believe it or not, I can imagine Connery and Pussy Galore in a way having a relationship, yeah. kind of less so maybe, but you know, here Denise Richards was picked up to be the eye candy, and what I'm going to share with you now in terms of justifying, maybe not justifying the hiring, but how Apted saw. Denise Richards performing. This is from the commentary that I just I, I went through the commentary, the director's commentary of the film to get some get some quotes and some just so I could better understand some of these things which I had a real vehemence towards when I was watching it. I remember watching this at the age of twenty and thinking, why the hell have they gone and done this? Why like, she's a joke to the Bond series? You know, like when the fandom is stronger maybe than your actual objectivity, then you can be disappointed easily. You know. Yes. And yeah. Apted said a couple of things. She had a very difficult role. She has perhaps a less developed role in the film. Uh, but he says that he wanted someone who could bring a lot of individuality and flair to the role. In some ways, she's the most traditional Bond girl. She's your real vintage Bond girl. He also says, I still wanted someone who could show intelligence and who had a lot of spunk and fire to her. Uh, and all of this, okay, it's starting to get further away from what I see on screen. And then we got, then we got this quote, you know, I, we wanted someone who you might have a chance of believing really does the job. She says she does. <laughs> End quote. Here's the thing I'll say in defense of Christmas Jones, uh, right, right here now. Um, I was very, she was very close actually to passing the Bechtel test as a female character. Are you familiar with the Bechtel tests? I am, actually, but why don't you go ahead and explain it again, because I love this. Yeah, the Bechtel test is essentially, uh, it I guess it tests, you know, like, the, it's like a feminist kind of mm -hmm. uh, test wherein it, as, if, if, a woman is if a woman is having a conversation, usually with two women, and in that conversation is not about another man or men in general, then it's considered passing the Bechtel test, all right? In many ways... Christmas Jones was focused completely on her job and everything going on in the film. She was very focused on getting those bombs disarmed and then, of course, helping Bond solve, you know, get that nuclear, it seemed a part of her to get that plutonium core back or stop it from being used, right? She seemed very concerned about this all the way through. You cannot deny that. 
However, she has one line when she asks about, you know, so what, what is it with you and what is it between you and Electra, right? And that automatically makes her fail the Bechtel test. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But that that's what needs to happen, right? In order for us to see, okay, this is her. Yeah, she's she wants Bond and she's she's just the girl. Like, they can't give her a role yet because Bond has to be the bigger one, doesn't he? Indeed. It just, we're, just not, we're not ready to give a, a female an equal partnership or Bond actually go after her. We're just not ready for that yet. We were kind of ready for it in 1969 with uh, their decision then to adapt uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. But even then, Bond had to fix Tracy first by yes. falling in love. And then he went after her because he found out he really loved her. But or, I don't know. Well, we'll get into that. That's, that's, that's really good. I fodder, I think, we get into the story of talking about Electra. Let's. You mentioned that there was some uh, mixed reactions that mm-hmm. kind of surprised you for the world is not enough. Can you discuss that a little bit? Certainly can, yes. Let's uh, turn our eyes to the critical reception. As you said, Josh, uh, budget about $130 million, premiered 8th of November 1999 in Hollywood, and a couple weeks later in the UK, the 22nd of November. One of only three Bond films, by the way, in the series that failed to recoup its budget on domestic box office. Obviously, it made its budget back, but do you know what the other two were? You guys want to take a guess? Play a little game? Another dinner? Nope. Hmm. I, was, I think for your eyes only. No, not for your eyes only. Um, um, oof, that's a good question. This is one of three Bond films whose domestic box office, so American box office, failed to claim back its production costs. Um, On a Magic Secret Service? Nope. Yeah. Can I phone a friend? You can. <laughs> Josh is your friend. Yep. <laughs> a view to a kill? No. Uh, I'll just put you out of your misery. License to Kill. I was thinking of that one next, oh, actually. And Quantum of Solace. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Worldwide, however, the film pu- pulled in 234.8 million pounds uh, and total box office, sorry, uh, 361. Okay. So the return on investment wasn't great for this one. It was mm-hmm. obviously great enough to be uh, successful. You know, it pulled in 168% dollar for dollar. So its return on dollar spent, dollar earned, 168%. The 23rd most lucrative film, so the second worst financially. What was the least? Uh, Dr. No? No. Too early for me in the morning, man. I need more coffee. (laughs) Quantum Quantum of Solace. Oh, okay. Okay. Wow. Okay. So so whatever the term, like, something sucks in regards to Bond, the answer is Quantum Quantum of Solace. That's right. That's that's your go-to answer, boys. But... The other thing that's important maybe to mention here is that each of these films, all of these Bond films are, are money makers. None of them actually lost out. But it's yes. fun It's fun when you start to kind of split apart the stats and the figures that you get, uh, kind of where they fail and then how they get picked up. It's always the worldwide box office that sees the strugglers okay at the end. But domestically, yes. a couple of them did fail a bit too, yeah. Uh, there are so many conflicting sources when it comes to adjustments and when it comes to box office. I mean, my sources for, for this today were thenumbers.com, which is a website for film data you guys might know about. The James Bond dossier, I read an Atlantic article uh, by Serena Day and also an article by Jeff Ewing at Forbes to explain kind of the money in this. So I feel as though my figures are well-researched, but 
it's tough to get a clear line through this because if you're trying to convert from pounds to dollars, dollars to pounds, where is the in, uh, inflation and how has it been adjusted? What's what's the mechanism for adjustment? So, you know, we, we've got to take all of these figures with a certain grain of salt, but it, it was the 23rd most lucrative film in the series. So it's not a big moneymaker, this one, for the, uh, you know, for the, for the ages anyway. Hmm, interesting. But you did go on and say that this was the first to be released by MGM. That's right. The first Bond film, and it remains a very strong MGM gainer. I think it's eighth on their list or something of this year. So, you know, pretty good. But in terms of critical reception, well, uh, I've got a range here. And as always, I'm not going to read them all out, but I I will share some with you. 52% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, Listen, I'm going to get this one right out here because we talk about Ebert a lot. His review from the 19th of November... Uh, he liked 1999. It. He liked it very much. He gave this a three and a half out of four stars. And the reason he liked it wasn't because it's a great film, but because his understanding of what makes the Bond films successful is how much fun am I having? How interested am I in the silliness that's going on? And because he's very much about having fun and not taking things too seriously, if the formula is complete, I, I guess in a sense you could say he's got a punter's frame of mind, you know? Yes. He's just like a regular... And, and he did have that every man about him when he went to sit and write his reviews, didn't he? Yeah, he never really had that, like, uh, I don't know, Protection, yeah. cinema, you know, kind mm-hmm. of attitude. Well, he goes through, instead of summarizing the plot, he just goes through the the trademarks and, and kind of measures them up. You know, he looks at James Bond himself. He says that Brosnan is the best Bond except for Connery. Uh, he says that the regulars are decent. There's poignancy because of Q and the way he, he disappears, you know. Um, M plays really well for him. Guest stars, he likes John Cleese's inclusion. Uh, he, he thinks both girls play really well. Um, he thinks that the chase sequences are really overpowering, really exciting. The villains are megalomaniacal, quite attractive to the story. I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm just summarizing all those paragraphs. Yeah. I'm not reading them out. Uh, the locations, he really gave a heads up for the locations. And I would agree with him. I love where the film goes. But what yes. I feel what I feel this film misses, and I'd love your guys' feeling on this, and we could talk about it when we get to atmosphere if you want, it's okay. But while the film has incredible locations that you don't often see in big budget films, and it's true, mm-hmm. we don't, I feel that there's a real lack of establishing shots in this film to give me the big scene pictures. There's lots of little scene pictures like here's a beautiful building, there's a really nice room, but I don't feel yeah. like we've got enough big picture establishing shots that give you the travel log uh, transitions I, the way I, I want I, to I, see. I kind of feel that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, they, they they do show the locations, but a lot sure, of them yeah. are kind of tight shots, right? So you're I feel right. that way. Yeah, you're right. I think Azerbaijan got a good. Yeah, like like that place had a good. Uh, shot just simply because of the uh, well, what was considered Azerbaijan. <laughs> yeah, like dr- mm-hmm. driving through the oil fields that the Soviets had had pl- plundered and all that kind of stuff, yeah. and then getting to the whole scene with Electra in the church. Like that was really great classic Bond establishment yeah, that was good. M- films. But like wow. Baku and like the, like the town of like the city of Baku and Electra's ha- villa there, mm-hmm. as well as like uh, the casino where Zukowski worked out of. I found that part seemed kind of murky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that has something to do with how it's cut, and how, uh, yeah. how kind yeah. of and quickly like, we move. And oh wait, we're in Kazakhstan now. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. I think that wasn't really established as well. Like, yeah. they never really get a good job of establishing Kazakhstan as different from Baku or from right. like, overall oh, yeah. Azerbaijan. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
Hmm. Well, Ebert really liked the film anyway. Uh, I won't go on about it, but let's get into a couple of other ones that maybe we can we can talk a bit about as well. Monica Sullivan writing for a movie magazine, International. The world is not enough. Someone once told me that the Starship Enterprise was cursed with a terrible commander because Captain Kirk constantly endangered his crew. By that logic, it's no wonder the British Empire ain't what it used to be if the head of MI6 is anything like the current vision of M in the film The World Is Not Enough. Uh, 1999's M seems incapable of making any decision that doesn't endanger MI6. Her oldest and dearest friends, herself, and by the way, the entire planet. A guy in my vicinity named Rob recalls seeing his first Bond film at the age of nine with his Uncle Rick. Like any self-respecting nine-year-old, he immediately noticed the gaping holes in the plot. Uncle Rick wisely explained that Rob... Uh, to Rob that this was a James Bond film. Sooner or later, we all learn that James Bond film producers are actually proud of those gaping plot holes. Dame Judi Dench may be one of the greatest actors in the world today, so if she doesn't mind collecting a paycheck to play the dumbest M in the series, why should we? Moving right along, internet buffs can't wait to see Denise Richards in anything as anyone, even bouncing physicist Dr. Christmas Jones. She makes her first appearance here a full hour into the story, diligently says her lines like a C-minus student trying to earn a B+. No, she can't act her way out of the nuclear sub, but think of the money the wardrobe supervisor saved on underwear. Much better is elegant Sophie Marceau as mysterious Electric King. Marceau, who's been enchanting international audiences since 1980's La Baume, makes you root for her even when she's wrong, and she gives meaning to her character that isn't always in the script. Robert Carlyle plays the villainous Renard, and if you hated his guts in Trainspotting and loved his butt in The Full Monty, you'll be surprised by his work here. He may be the most poignant of all the Bond villains, daft naturally, but not a cartoon. Robbie Coltrane is the obligatory comic relief, as the villain who isn't a villain, think Vincent Schiavelli in Tomorrow Never Dies, this time round as Valentin Kuzgovsky, complete with an all-purpose Scottish Russian accent. John Cleese, 60, is a welcome sight as R, the young fellow who's being groomed to be MQ's replacement. The wonderful Llewellyn, Desmond Llewellyn, 85, who's been playing Q since he was a lad of 49, has seen Bond actors and Bond girls and Bond villains and M's and money pennies come and go. And I hope he'll turn up to the 21st century for at least one gruff line delivery as often as he can. He makes every Bond look good. Oh yes, Bond, Pierce Brosnan, as the second best James Bond ever glistens as the unsmiling secret agent on tough assignments, although his wariness at delivering old-fashioned sex puns is visible. After all, his recent co-stars include the classy Michelle Yeoh and Rene Russo. He has to give them up for a nuclear physicist with high school delivery. Shirley Manson of Garbage sings the title track, which sounds like all the other theme songs, only with slightly different lyrics. Like an old watch that's been thrown into the sea, Bond's still ticking. There's Monica oh. Sullivan. Oh, okay. Uh, a little bit here from uh, James Bernadelli, whose review I skipped last time. And I didn't want to do the same this time because I figured he deserves a, his time in the sun, you know? Okay, absolutely. So writing for real views, he gives us three stars. Okay. When it comes to Bond films, there's really only one question. Does it entertain for the entire running length? For The World Is Not Enough, as for the previous two endeavors with Brosnan, the answer is yes. There's nothing special, shocking, or precedent-setting about the film, but it functions on a level that 007 fans will appreciate as eye and ear candy for those who prefer action to exposition and character development. There are plenty of bangs, flashes, and chase sequences, foots, skis, water, plus the usual array of beautiful women with skimpy outfits and funny names, science fiction-inspired gadgets, and exotic locales. In many ways, it's difficult to judge a Bond film by the same standards applied to other movies. The series has lasted long enough to establish its own set of rules, and as long as the latest movie plays by them, it usually works. Plot credibility, for example, is not an element. Bond stories shouldn't be taken with just a grain of salt. You need the whole shaker. 
it's somehow easier to suspend disbelief to an extraordinary level while watching 007 execute the expected series of superhuman tricks. The fact is, when it comes to a Bond movie, the last thing anyone wants is believability. We're there to see the formula applied in the most ostentatious fashion possible. The louder and more over-the-top, the better. That's why it doesn't matter that we're supposed to accept Denise Richards as a nuclear scientist, or that the ending of the world is not enough makes absolutely no sense. Character development has never been one of the series' strong suits, but there is actually some evidence of it here. The relationship between villain and henchman is more complex than usual, not to mention a little unexpected in its nature. When it comes to the bad guys, it's business as usual, but with a twist. Meanwhile, Brosnan does a few interesting things with Bond. This is a rare movie in which we are given a clear picture of the character's loneliness. His dead wife is never mentioned, but her presence hovers over Bond almost from the beginning. Mm. 007 is also colder here than in any film since License to Kill. Brosnan actively works to bring the screen superhero closer to Ian Fleming's conscienceless secret agent. I saw none of this, by the way. I saw none of this when I was watching this movie. Anyway, that's just me. Uh, Sophie Marceau, who is a solid actress, does a credible job as Electra, Bond girl number one. Not only is she pleasant to look at, but she gives a good performance, as one can reasonably expect in these constricted circumstances. Equally attractive, although not as capable, as Denise Richards, whose portrayal of Dr. Jones follows the Tanya Roberts model. <laughs> Robert Carlyle, still best known in the United States for his part in The Full Monty, plays a relatively generic villain. Renard has a bullet lodged in his brain that's slowly killing him, but until it dies, makes him stronger every day. Warning, do not use Bond movies as a means to gain medical or scientific knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> Old friend Valentin uh, Zukovsky, Robbie Coltrane, previously seen in GoldenEye, is back. The MI6 alphabet soup includes M, Q, and newcomer R, played by John Cleese, who is Q's protege. The score by composer David Arnold is the best in over a decade. While the opening song, The World Is Not Enough, sung by Garbage, is not destined for greatness, it's better than Tomorrow Never Dies. Throughout the film, Arnold frequently borrows cues from Barry's past work, making the music sound decidedly Barry-esque. The James Bond theme is used and incorporated effectively, climaxing in a full, resounding rendition played over the end credits. For Goldeneye, Eric Serra didn't want to use the Dr. No music because he thought it was dated. Well, the world is not enough proves how wrong he was. Last one, guys. Uh, Wesley Morris, who we have used here in the past. Uh, he was writing for the Boston Globe at that time, I believe. Here, he's writing for the San Francisco Chronicle. This was released on the... Uh, three days before the American premiere, 19th of November. The only creature hornier than James Bond in a 007 flick is a Bond girl. It's so obvious, it doesn't count as an observation. But in the world is not enough, apparently this is something unfathomable to Bond's boss, M. 007, she gasps when a tracking device reveals Her Majesty's hay boy lying on a bed with a pair of legs spreading beneath him. <laughs> How did the gadget find them? Why, body heat, of course. At this point, M's astonishment that she has a slut for a star spy seems as outmoded as the throwback plot for this 19th Bond escapade. Before she dispatches Bond for his latest case, she chides with maternal warmth, shadows stay in front or behind, never on top. What should have blown M's mind is that his conquest is the brilliant Dr. Christmas Jones, and that she's played by the improbable Denise Richards. Richards is that lusty starlet from big renters like Wild Things and Drop Dead Gorgeous who brings down this house the moment some rusky scientist announces, look, our atomic physicist, with Eureka in his voice, and we hear her deliver her first line from inside a large white suit designed to keep out the plutonium and ward off doubt that her degree is from an accredited institution. Brosnan, 
who with his permanent come-hither squint and sporty way, with even limp throwaway Bon Mots, is as effective and playful a Bond as Sean Connery and Roger Moore, takes one look at Richards and knows two things. One, he's gone to heaven. Two, heaven will never be as easy to get into as this. In the meantime, <laughs> Richards ex ex exists. In the meantime, Richard exists in The World Is Not Enough to tell us what we already know. What do I need to defuse a nuclear bomb? demands Bond. Me, Dr. Jones almost giggles in her khaki short shorts and midriff bearing top. Lab coats are for the atomic physicists with tiny breasts. Less a pitchman whore for BMW, Savile Row, Visa, Rolex, Coach, the sharper image, or VH1 than he was in Goldeneye and Tomorrow Never Dies, Brosnan's Bond, like his Thomas Crown and his Remington Steel, is less cluttered by stuff and more in simple pursuit of whatever booty this ultimately boring retread of a script puts in his way. The opening sequence is a reliably hilarious action bit in which Brosnan chases a Latina Prada assassin along the Thames in dueling speedboats. His is a concept hyperpower number straight from the Batcave, and there's also an energetic finale set aboard a sinking, or is it rising, submarine that calls on Brosnan to hold his breath for 90 seconds and Richards to get her chest damp while keeping the hydrogen gas levels low. <laughs> but in a trip way back to the mid-80s, the story for The World Is Not Enough could have been written by John le Carré on an Ian Fleming bender. The Cold War still seems pretty hot. The British Empire apparently still is one. Lines like, I'm a slave to the free market economy are still considered confessions if said by a guy with a Russian accent. And mink ski parkas with matching Cossack hat are all the rage. Witness, yeah. witness Electra King, our Bond vixen played by Gallic bombshell Sophie Marceau, who hops from a chopper to hit the slopes with Bond. Indeed, Electra does have a daddy complex, and after her father's murder, she finds herself the benefactor of, her, of his multi-billion dollar oil business which is laying a new pipeline that stretches across the Middle East. The victim of a kidnapping by a mad Russian called Renard, uh, played by Robert Carlyle, arriving from the Tim Roth Fay Villain Studio, Electra is also a recovering agoraphobe who speaks in a telltale Camus-like self-helpisms. There's no point in living if you can't feel alive. This explains why she's done such a bang-up job running Daddy's company. As respired and maneuvered by the feline Marceau, Electra is a sex machine trapped in the grooves of a Celine Dion record. You used me, she hiss whimpers to Bond, post-coitus. You used me as bait. Bond is smitten with her because she's elusive and probably bad, but it's over once he finds out that she's conspiring with her former kidnapper, Bernard, Ooh, spoiler. who apparently had her first. Mm -hmm. Sorry about that. To the surprise of few, we learn here that James Bond takes sloppy seconds from no one. As tired and ostensibly passé as the film is, The World Is Not Enough, like a 19th version of anything, is inanely self-parodic. So much so that one wonders why Austin Powers need have bothered in the first place. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Oof. Yeah, Wesley Morris there. So there's some critical reception. Uh, some people liked it for its fun and its adventure. Some people cited its female actor... Or sorry, its female casting as progressive. And some... Uh, really thought it was pants. So <laughs> I don't know about progressive. Yeah. Over to you, buddy. Uh, that's that's some information on the critical reception, and I guess now it's it's not an easy task what you're about to do, Josh. So I look forward to your plot summary on the world is not enough. Ah, well, see if I can uh, measure up. I suppose. <laughs> So Bond is in Spain, 
Bilbao Spain, thanks to not one but two title cards, double establishing shot, he's wearing glasses. That's different. He's meeting some Swiss banker about money and an MI6 agent who was killed procuring it and wanting to know what happened. He does this with some menace, but still manages to check out the measurements of the paralegal slash cigar lady in the banker's office. But Mr. Swiss Banker doesn't like all those questions, so Bond takes off his glasses, triggers a smoke grenade in the gun they took from him, and shoots everyone but the banker and cigar girl dead. And maybe some guy that missed the bullet in the corner. Cigar girl makes a final statement with a well-placed knife in Swiss Banker's back. She runs down the stairs. Meanwhile, the policia are rounding the staircase, ready to bust in, and Bond closes the door, grabs a briefcase of money that he has come to collect, and uses the curtain cord, the dazed bad guy on the floor, as an anchor weight, and leaves from the window. The thug provided him just enough to give to belay himself to the street below. New title card, MI6 London. Bond is overseeing the counting of the money from the briefcase in the labs below. He enters M's offices, shares a bad Monica Lewinsky joke with Moneypenny, and meets Sir Robert King. M's study buddy from Oxford, an owner of the mysterious briefcase. King thanks Bond for returning his money and leaves Bond and M alone for the debriefing. Bond would like some ice to go with the scotch M has provided him, but as he sits down, he notices that his drink begins to bubble. He also feels something dodgy on his hands. King, the money. Bond rushes to the counting room where King is currently retrieving his money from the briefcase. And after a close-up of his custom brooch, for some reason, the money starts to catch fire and boom. King, the money in the entire room of MI6 is taken out with one explosion. Sifting through the smoke, Bond sees that Vauxhall has a breach. And in the chaos, he barely registers the flowing red dot on his chest. He, he sees, or rather we see, Cigar Girl clad in a red cat suit firing a machine gun from a tripod mounted at the stern of the speedboat. He dodges a salvo and runs into Q's lab as a Cigar Girl roars off down the Thames. Bond spots Q's prototype assault boat. Actually, James, it's the old dude's fishing boat for retirement, but whatever. And commandeers it down a drain outlet into the river in full pursuit of Cigar Girl. Several canal shortcuts and water donuts later, Bond disables Cigar Girl's gun mount with some stunt boat driving a la the jump in the mount with a golden gun, Sand slide whistle. There you go. And has to deal with her remaining weapon, a grenade launcher that does some damage that Bond loses her. But he's got Q's onboard computer, so he Google Maps for a shortcut across dry land through the waterfront dining district and back on the other side somewhere near Greenwich. That was fast. The Millennium Dome is the last port of a call girl, a last port of call of cigar girl. <laughs> she races for the shore, scraping across the rocks as Bond's onboard missiles takes out the boat. Cigar girl has already jumped, however, and hijacking an actual hot air balloon with her 45. But Bond breathlessly uses the burning embers of her boat as a ramp, leaping the Q-boat through the air and jumping out of the, to capture the mooring ropes of the hot air balloon as it ascends. As she ascends, Bond pleads to help her, saying he can protect her from whoever is paying her. But Cigar Girl, seeing the surrounding helicopters and Bond dragging her down, is frightened of something. Could it be the big bad? Whoever it is, he, she must be scary because she shoots the oxygen tank of her balloon, thus exploding her and the heat power canvas conveyance to pieces. Bond has no choice but to drop from the mooring rope as the balloon disintegrates above and falls to the roof of the dome, rolling down violently until entangling himself on some wires. He doesn't look so good. Better than Cigar Girl, I guess. And that was just the pre-title sequence, folks. Let me ask you guys something, Josh, just to, just to interrupt you here. You know, she does do that, doesn't she? She, I mean, she kills herself, essentially, instead of revealing yes. who it is that yeah. she's working for. Yeah. That type of altruism is almost unheard of, not just in the world. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you've got to be radicalized to have that sort of a response. Uh, yeah. why, why not just reveal who it is that she's working for? She got a chance of staying alive, maybe. 
Well, I did kind of like the idea of like it shows you like wow, this guy's going to be crazy. But I almost feel like you got to make sure that the villain is crazy. Yeah, lives yeah. up to that ability. If the to, you better, follow, so, up to you, that, you better yeah. follow up. It's almost like jumping the shark. Yeah, it, I mean, it is actually. That's that's right. Yeah. Really. It really is, yeah. I mean, this guy, this guy, so, this guy could, oh, could, wow. could 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 turn actually this, this big bad, so to speak, could actually turn out to be uh, kind of a lapdog to the main to, to the actual main villain. You know, I don't know yeah, that could happen. Could. Um, but yeah, that's uh, it. Was like wow, that was pretty. It was pretty intense. Yeah, my shoulder hurt just watching <laughs> him fall. Oh, I was yeah, just watching him get caught in the in the cables. Moments. I was like, oh man. Yeah, that was an old moment. Oh. So the opening titles are slick. <laughs> That's pretty crude. <laughs> oh, oh, oh man! But the song is garbage. <laughs> oh, Seriously, man. folks, though, it's a good garbage song. I grant you, but it, is it a great Bond song? You decide. I have decided. Do, you, do you, I mean? Are you asking for, for, our, for our, our listeners to decide? Yes. <laughs> yes. You'll be waiting a while. Yes, our studio audience. What do you think? Bagpipes. We must be in Scotland. It's the residence of the late Sir Robert King, he who has just exploded. Bond is walking with a sling, dressed in black with Tanner, Money Penny, and the guy Colin Salmon is playing. I, I forgot his name, sorry. Um, yeah, Colin Salmon, sorry. We see a beautiful young brunette woman in morning dress speaking to M. This is King's daughter and heiress, Electra King. Electra walks away from, Q, from M, Q briefing at the temporary MI6 headquarters, lots of cleanup after the bombing, which happens to be an ancient Scottish castle. Her study buddy is dead, and she's pissed off. She wants his killer's head on a pike and hands out the assignments, but Bond is ignored because he's not cleared for medical. Enter Dr. Warmflash, who Bond ingratiates himself with as, as she is female so he can throw off his sling and investigate who killed Robert King. Mm -hmm. While he is waiting for the result, he hacks into the MI6 server because he's a computer hacker in addition to having a license to kill. Mm -hmm. He sees a video of Electra King's ransom crisis from a few years ago. How Electra was held hostage by anarchists for ransom and how she got out of the situation herself by seducing her captors and shooting two of them dead. Bond is touched by her confession, attempting to wipe away a tear with his finger on the screen. James, they may be regrettably ahead of their time touchscreens, but yeah. they're not that sophisticated. Yeah. <laughs> Bond crashes M's secret briefing, calling out her agenda and that she's taking things personally. Utter insubordination, but she's fine with it, giving 007 the floor completely due to her apparent shame in the situation. King and her were closer than study buddies, and it seems, and at that juncture, she was asked by King to save Electra from her captors. She did not pay the ransom. Instead, she used Electra as bait. Ouch. So who could be out to get Robert King and possibly his daughter, Victor Sokas, Renard? We meet him as if he was one of the holonet vids of Palpatine talking to Darth Vader, only much lamer and unrealistic in the modern world this film is supposed to convey. <laughs> the hologram shows us that the bullet M had originally put in Renard's head via one of her agents did not kill him, but is slowly doing the job, making its way through his medulla oblongata, ensuring that he feels absolutely nothing anymore and makes him super strong for some reason. Pretty scary <laughs> bad guy so far. Yeah. Put that oh, under the rug. Like, he gets like he'll get stronger until he dies. Yes. Mm, okay, sure. Pretty scary bad guy so far, right? Despite his mini insurrection, M puts Bond back on active duty. He meets up with Q and after some bad Scottish jokes, followed by an introduction of his replacement R, played by the Minister of Funny Walks, who demonstrates a winter <laughs> jacket that turns into a big grey testicle, he announces to Bond of his retirement. With some weird words of advice, Never make them see you bleed. I can't see QC and yeah, I just don't see that line. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I never. I cannot see that either. Like yeah. maybe is that is that his family? Uh, is that motto? his family motto? Is yeah. That, yeah, exactly. Is that, is that the Boothroyd family model? Who yeah, knows? Yeah. Uh, he sinks into the depths of the castle. Cool, I guess. Learning that King was given <laughs> a fake brooch to trigger the bomb, M is certain that King's death is an inside job. Someone working with Renard. Bond takes these words of caution and embarks. 
Bond flies out to Azerbaijan, taking his BMW Z8 through the barren oil fields because cross-promotion, as he heads towards his destination outside of Baku. On his way to find Electric King, he can't help but notice King helicopters equipped with underbelly chainsaws cutting the tops of the trees. Can't think of a reason why I shared this small detail. Arriving at the location, he observes Electric King defuse some local brouhaha with the civilians and Russian Orthodox Church and her own pipeline. It appears Electra is loved by her people, her mother's people. Bond goes along with her to survey another survey of her pipeline in the Caucasus, a routine task that permits a little skiing. Bond wows her with, her superlat- with his superlative downhill skills. That's not a euphemism, by the way. And the music is soaring and everything is so <laughs> It should be, though. At Craigie Peaks and Sublime <laughs> until some parahawks show up. Parahawks for the uneducated are jet skidoos mounted with what appears to be the fan motor of an Everglades boat attached to a parachute. <laughs> now, I'm all for downhill ski chases in a Bond film, but when the pursuers are gradually hovering towards them with short-range machine guns yeah. that they can easily dodge, it's not very exciting. Yeah. Still, the Parahawks do their damn best to best Bond and Electra, but Bond takes them out one by one, showing us their inadequacy as mercs oh, and as vehicles. Yeah. The last one explodes above them and causes the ground to collapse and trap under an avalanche of snow. But Bond just so happens to be wearing the great big testicle jacket. Despite it saving her life, Electra does not enjoy being inside a great big testicle and wants out. <laughs> they return to her villa at Baku. Her point man, security head Davidoff and bodyguard Gabor wait for, with Bond as the doctor descends. She only wants to see Bond. Ouch, Davidoff and Gabor. That's okay, though. Davidoff has other plans this evening. Bond visits Electra in her bedchamber, and she thanks him for saving his life with sex or lovemaking, as she prefers. Meanwhile, Davidoff saunters off to some meeting spot at some holy Hindu site with burning rocks that I'm not quite clear on. He's there with the others waiting for the big bad to show up. Hey, it's Renard. Renard shows up all bald and menacing. He disciplines his mercs by shooting Dr. Markov, a nuclear engineer, and punishes Davidoff with some hot stones. The plot thickens. Poiscoitus, Bond decides to check out the local casino in Baku. Actually, he's following a lead from the Parahawks. Coincidentally, is ru- the casino is run by Valentin Zukowski. Remember him? The former KGB-turned-legit businessman from GoldenEye who, has a, who, had, who, had, a, who had a mistress with a terrible singing voice? Anyway, he happens, to be owned, he happens to own the whole place and has a network of agents in Azerbaijan. Bond infiltrates the casino, showing off his X-ray specs and embarrassing his Zukowski heavy in front of all those girls. Zukowski seems to be in the initial stages of a threesome when Bond is brought to his office, and we meet Mr. Bull, or Mr. Bullion, his gold-teeth right-hand man. <laughs> Bond wants info on Renard, but Zukowski is more interested in the rival Electric King. Electra plays blackjack with her dead daddy's money and loses it all, reminding, reminding you of someone, James? After all, isn't life worth living if you can't feel alive? Bond notices that Davidoff is not with Electra, and after some sex, sneaks out of bed to search Davidoff's offices. But Davidoff shows up and Bond finds a dead Dr. Markov in his trunk. Bond decides to have some fun with Davidoff and hide in the trunk, waiting for him. <laughs> when Davidoff opens the trunk, boy, he's in for a surprise. Davidoff is surprised. <laughs> you know Bond what? Guns- I, I would love to see more scenes of, like, Bond struggling, like, ugh, like, getting into the trunk. Like, oh, right? fuck. Yeah. Like, getting comfortable all we see is that smile that makes it all look so easy but it's not easy getting into the back of a trunk and locking yourself in like oh, with, no. with, with, a dead, with a dead guy already in there yeah yeah you want to see those scenes. it's like, it's like uh, josh and i used to say like watching 24 like how, you know the minutes you don't see it's like jack bauer actually has to go to the bathroom or him stuck in traffic or yeah. him like trying to get like a coke out of a vending machine yeah how does jack yeah. bauer navigate so, that la yeah, the, traffic uh, to get to yeah. one side of los angeles to, uh, to ctu in 10 minutes you know what i mean <laughs> You know, I'm sure he has to, and then same with Bond. It's like, oh, what if, you know, yeah, exactly. Anyways, go ahead. <laughs> All that rich food that he eats as well, you know, like he must be having some rotten gas. 
Oh, absolutely. Right? Could you just imagine the smell of that car with the dead guy and whatever he was just eating? Yeah. Uh, and that caviar? That, that wasn't, yes. That, that yeah. caviar? Absolutely. Yeah. When Davidov opens a trunk, boy, he's in for a surprise. <laughs> Davidov is surprised. Bond guns him down without blinking, dumps Amen. his body in a trash container, Mathis style, and offers a really bad explanation why Davidov yeah. isn't there to some guy in a flashy blue tracksuit <laughs> and boards a plane with, with other guys in flashy blue tracksuits. Bond is soon given his own tracksuit, but he feels he's not comfortable taking his off his clothes in front of these other men and enters a lavatory where he not only changes but cuts himself a fake ID to replace Davidoff. I love it. After landing, they arrive via Jeep to some nuclear disarmament site where he and we meet Dr. Christmas Jones for the first time. When I hear Dr. Jones, I think of the Aqua song. Is that weird? Yes. Okay. Um, just wow, weird... I, had, I hadn't thought about that song in probably since years. I last heard it. Yeah. Yeah, which is probably 20 years ago, right? Yeah. I'll be, I'll be <laughs> listening to I, I, that tonight. I like Barbie Girl. Dr. Jones is a good song, but whatever. That's her name. Please wear it out. A buxom American beauty who knows her nuclear core. She doesn't take kindly to Bond and his alias. Bond makes it inside, now track suited himself to finally meet Renard. Renard and another crew of men are already there getting the nuclear bomb ready. Bond manages to get Renard into a dark corner and beat him down with a gun to his head. Bond takes all the nasty talk about Electra to heart and aims to finish the job right there until Renard says, life isn't worth living if you don't feel alive. Huh. Wait a second, says Bond, who, but before he can stroll down memory lane, the disarmament overseer, along with the pneumatic and improbable Dr. Jones, arrives with some men to arrest Bond and others as Jones has called Bond's bluff. But Renard and his men respond in kind, killing the director and his men and escaping down the tunnel with the nuke guided by chains. Bond manages to save Dr. Jones and adds her to his former party of one. Bond re- pursues Renard down the tunnel while Dr. Jones tries to hotwire the silo door open. Bond gets some shots of Renard, but the vil- villain makes it to an elevator and leaves a tiny explosive for Bond. The fire is right on Bond's tail as he uses the chain to scree down the tunnel toward the silo door which Dr. Jones has managed to open. He pulls her to the side and aims for the silo's roof with a built-in baton in his wristwatch. He fires the baton. Dramatic pause. Who are you? She says. Dramatic pause. I'm Batman. Bond and Dr. Zone zip line to the silo's roof and slip through the doors just as fire belches out from down below. Meanwhile, Reynard and his men let loose a killing spree from their jeep as they escape the camp with the bomb. Bond returns to Baku, pissed at Elektra, accusing her of Stockholm Syndrome and that despite her best intentions, he is under her captor's thr- she is under her captor's thrall. While logic dictates Renard would know his shoulder was injured because of the sling and that Renard confessed he was watching Bond acquire the money that inevitably killed King, he still wants to know why they both share the same catchphrase in the era before memes and Twitter. Electra changes the subject, telling M is on his way. This seems to have distracted James Bond. <laughs> At King's refinery, offices in Baku, M tears into Bond for t- endangering Electra, but before 007 will have none of it, they learn via dozens of analysts, technicians, and computers and projection screens that there is something in the pipeline, a bomb. Christmas Jones is there, the only one qualified to dismantle the bomb. So she takes along with Bond into the pipeline. The pipeline can be seen quickly navigating by some sort of dolly on wheels that moves at high speed. All this is being monitored on the big screens. Soon Bond and Dr. Jones have the bomb in sight. They jump to the dolly. The bomb has been placed so Christmas can defuse it. To their chagrin, it's just a detonator, not the plutonium core. Fully aware of what's happening, Bond tells Christmas to let it detonate and throw him and her off the dolly, which doesn't injure them in any way, despite the high speeds they are going at. The bomb detonates. Everyone in the back of the offices thinks Bond is dead. Emma's not happy at losing her top man, nor is she happy at receiving the gift from Elektra, King's original brooch pin. Uh-oh, shit just got real. Gabor and Elektra's mercs kill M bodyguards and take her captive. You done fucked up, M. 
The bomb took out a junction of the pipeline, giving Bond and Dr. Jones an exit point. Dr. Jones is furious. He let the bomb explode, but tells her that it was necessary. Now everyone thinks we're dead. Can you help us understand that in English for those of us who don't speak spy? Hey, Christmas, like Cordelia Chase called and wants to tell you to stop stealing her lines. So playing dead at, at least for a set piece or two, Bond and Christmas make their way somewhere because plot. M finds herself locked in a cage and Electra is awaiting the arrival of her man. She jumps on Renard as if he is returning on VE Day. Afterwards, it's implied they have sex. It's weird and creepy. Was it good for her? Was it good for Renard? Who knows? <laughs> More fun has had to be at Valentin Zakowski's caviar factory until Bond and Dr. Jones show up in his BMW Z8. Mm. Um, just a word, James, <laughs> but it's hard to fake your death when you drive the expensive and rare vehicle around the environs of the which you supposedly died. Bond has no time for games, however, and puts the heat on Zakowski. But uh-oh, trouble. A few helicopters have arrived, each armed with a squad of mercs and underbelly chainsaws. Told you they'd be back. Bond gives us a lot of daring do as he takes down each helicopter and its squad, each shot, each frame, documenting the destruction of this very large set, specifically built to show chainsaw helicopters cut through a building. In the end, the casualties were some Valentine thugs, all the mercs and their helicopters, and most of Valentine's pride. Oh, and Bond's Z8, which was fr pretty freaking cool with the side missiles and all that and a bag of chips. Ooh. Zukowski, Bond, Christmas, and even Goldie manage to survive the onslaught, but since Zukowski is drowning in caviar, Bond and Christmas, a.k.a. She likes caviar with sour cream. What? What? Extorts Zukowski <laughs> in revealing that all Electra wanted from Zukowski was a nuclear submarine commandeered by his cousin. Now, where that Renard and Electra have a plutonium core and a nuclear reactor. Right. Can I just stop here for one quick second? Okay. I know you're getting yeah. into the, the denouement, the climax after. The, this is where the film goes to crazy town for me, and I cannot yeah. follow it. I don't get it. I don't understand I what what, I, her, I, what is her plan with the nuclear sub. I know she wants to hold all of, and I hope you go on to explain it, Josh. I know she wants to destroy Istanbul because all the oil goes through there, and she can claim yeah. like this thing is bonkers to me. Like, would they just throwing shit at a wall and seeing like what sticks? Yeah. I don't know about that. Broccoli was saw that thing on Nightline about you know the, about the about how the oil industry works and stuff. And the Bosporus is the pipeline to the from the east to the west because it's a big port and all the stuff coming through and the pipeline is there. So if she irradiates the the pipeline, um, if she irradiates Istanbul, she cuts off that access to and there would only be one to the oil, yeah. and that leads them only to go to taking the oil from King Oil Wells, from which go which, which goes south yeah. from. Istanbul, all the way around, I guess, through uh, the uh, Med into uh, into Europe. Well, yes, but isn't that going to draw an enormous amount of attention on her organization? Yes, because people involved in, in oil don't commit <laughs> terrible, violent acts of terrorism. And, you know, and no one else does anything about it. All right. They, well, they just, uh... just want to, like, give, give the people their, their product. That's all. Yeah. You know? Okay, but look, you guys are talking about this as though, like, these things don't have to be costumed a little bit. This wouldn't be costumed at all. No, I know. I know. It was a bit ridiculous. It's like, wow. Well, I think her, her thing was that it would be, like, a terrible accident that occurred, right? Yeah, that's and what she, it was. And she would benefit from it. And whose cousin has a nuclear sub just kicking around? A former, right? a former KGB officer's cousin? Keep it in the family, right? Yeah, exactly. This is so stupid. <laughs> anyway, I, sorry, man. Keep going. No, no, no. Yeah, you're, you're, not, you're not wrong on your assessment. Yeah, you're not wrong. Believe me. Um, I just love being devil's advocate. It's fun. Um, Sorry, I threw you off there, man. Uh, that's, would... that's, that's totally okay. So basically, yeah, so Zwakowski is drowning caviar. Bon and Christmas, a.k.a. she who likes caviar with sour cream, so uh, extorts Zwakowski in revealing that all Electra wanted from Zwakowski was a nuclear submarine commandeered by his cousin. 
now aware that Renard and Electra have a plutonium core and a nuclear reactor, Zukowski suddenly brings them to a Russian Secret Service installation in Istanbul. But before you can save from Russia with icky love, Goldie betrays his boss and bond to Renard. At least they deduce Renard plans to cause a meltdown with the sub via the plutonium core to irradiate Istanbul and the West access to the oil pipelines, forcing them to actually get the oil from the King pipelines. Electra, you diabolical minx. Oh, and M had some MacGyvering of her own in getting her electronic pass card, oh, yeah. neglected in, in, in the search of her person, apparently, wired up to reveal her location. Yeah, that was all I, dumb. <laughs> oh, yeah. Having left Valentine, his old boss, for dead back at the installation, Goldie brings Vaughn and Christmas to the Maiden's Tower, Electra's headquarters, in the middle of the Bosporus. Renard has just poisoned the crew of the submarine and is now off to take it to the bottom of the Bosporus and melt down the reactor with the plutonium core. She sends Christmas to Renard on the sub, supposedly, just before it departs. That's a really weird line. Then she combines <laughs> Bond to an Ottoman-style garrotine chair oh, designed man. to slowly break the neck of its occupant. She rants and raves at Bond, explaining how this will give glory to her mother's family, to her people, but she's clearly nuts. She's all about the world, you see. The rule is not enough, Bond says unironically while we playing the home game, say <laughs> either A, hey, that's the name of the movie, or B, hey, that's the Bond family motto. The answer is both A and B. But in the end, this isn't a multiple choice quiz because all Electra wants to do is ride Bond's asphyxiation boner. Too bad <laughs> yeah. Valentine wasn't dead and shows up to the maiden's tower with a boatload <laughs> of thugs. Valentine guns down Goldie and demands to see his cousin, but sees the captain's hat on the side table next to whatever Pulp Fiction pawn shop shit that is about to go down in the drawing room. So Kowski, for some reason, lowers his gun and demands to see the hat. Electra walks over and shoots Valentine through the hat because he put his gun down. But he ain't dead, yet the Tufts SOB uses a gun in his cane to knock one of Bond's bracelets off, a fact that Bond uses to his advantage to escape from the chair, gun down Gabor, and chase Electra up the stairs, who is suddenly infantilized and not aware of the danger she is in. Bond has to stop briefly on one of the floors through where he when he hears M yell his name. A well-placed shot to her jail cell door, and he continues up the stairs, intent on ending Electra's little game. He hands her a CB, demanding her to call Renard off, but Electra is disturbingly coquettish, as usual, and gambles once again for a final time. She tells Renard to dive, and Bond shoots her dead. It's bittersweet and not at all cathartic. Bond then leaps out a window and dives into the Bosporus to climb aboard Renard's disembarking submarine, because that's how he rolls. Bond moves to the ship, taking out Renard's men, liberating Dr. Jones, has brief shootout on the comms, shooting all the controls and sending the submarine on its head. The ballast tanks open and the ship's filled with water. Christmas is trapped and Renard is making his way upwards to the stern to access the reactor. Bond manages to exit the ship via a torpedo tube and swims his way to the hatch in the stern. He saves Christmas from drowning and then confronts Renard in the reactor room. He finds Renard about to stick the plutonium core, now in large gold pipe-shaped device, into the little hole that accesses the nuclear reactor. They fight. They showed insults. Bond tells the star-crossed lover that his star-crossed lover is dead. But Renard won't believe it, but instead of killing Bond, he throws him in some corner and places a movable grate on top of him and climbs back up to give it to the reactor some more. Perhaps maybe a yippee kaye was needed, but Renard dying by Bond hooking, to, hooking the pressure hose back up so the reactor can shoot back the projectile through his torso like Bennett from Commando is only bittersweet. It's kind of lame. Let off some steam, Renard. <laughs> Good job saving Istanbul and averting some nutbars monopolistic control of the oil industry, though. Back at the, at the Castle M, Tanner, Moneypenny, and R are trying to track down 007. Oh, boy. I guess Electra being crazy and all and witnessing Denise Richards' submarine set wet t-shirt contest stirs some romantic feelings in Bond <laughs> for the good Dr. Jones. Sometimes the world is not enough. The world is enough when you have Christmas in Turkey. Sometimes the feeling is right. You fall in love for the first time. <laughs> yeah. See that thing. 
that that the the reactor like I don't, I don't know what the fuck like it's like the giant light bright it looked like yeah me, but... yeah what was that also i liked uh, when he got shot in the chest i was like 180 because didn't it look like a giant it did. yeah it yeah. did it's like, or, or like an advent calendar or something yeah yeah it's all kinds of weird that thing like and it's very decorative very colorful inside that space you know like like you say the, the movable yeah. grates and all that and then you've got this like beautiful uh, almost like a stained glass crystalline well, surface full of exactly exactly because you know so I've weird. done a little bit of research about you know uh, Russian subs Soviet era subs and I know that they're very very particular about color coding and making sure that all of the you know the sailors inside are are comfortable with the way it looks inside and I think that was very obvious there you know <laughs> yeah quite yeah Every, everybody's happy that's for sure yeah, the uh, the onboard decorator, you know. I personally love the idea of that sequence, though—the sub going under, uh, uh, over, under—and then like it's just like that whole sequence was shot very well. Yeah, and in terms of just like how you know it was like the Poseidon adventure almost, like going through through the ship, and uh, it's just a really kind of cool way way. But it would have worked way better in a much better film, in my opinion. Yeah, it is a good scene, but I yeah, I don't I don't really understand. Like Bond puts a hell of a lot of faith in Denise Richards or Dr. Jones's ability yeah. to to push the button at the right time and right. I wouldn't but uh, she's a nuclear physicist yeah man I know but that doesn't mean no she's... it's true though she, I, I was thinking the same thing like man she you know she really uh, was important and she did a good job and like he did have a lot of faith in her to do that you know she was really on top of it she's Denise Richards as Christmas Jones is such a paradox like is she a useful character yes but does she work in the movie no no is she probable? Well, yes. Sure. But she's also improbable. You know what I mean? It's a it's a paradox. Yeah, it's and she's in a Bond movie. Maybe if she was in a uh, in a Michael Mann film and didn't have the same sorts. I don't know. I'm just I'm just you know Michael postulating. Well, Michael uh, Bay film Michael would Bay uh, Michael film. Bay film would be upper alley actually. Yeah, Michael Bay. Michael Bay would 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 maybe cast her as a a nuclear scientist, but yeah, exactly. I, I'd probably buy Megan Fox as a nuclear physicist. Uh, before do you know first. what? Think Ooh. about this, guys. Think about this, okay? Tony Scott did The Rock, right? Yes. What if... No, Michael Bay directed The Rock. Michael Bay directed The Rock. Yeah, sorry. So Michael Bay... Okay, forget Tony Scott. Michael Bay takes Nicolas Cage's bomb explosive expert from The Rock and puts him that. in a film with Denise Richards, nuclear physicist. That's an idea that will make money. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because as both Cage actors are, the box office draw these days. <laughs> as both actors are today, I want to see that movie, 2021, please. You know what? You probably will with Nicolas Cage's career nowadays. Yeah. And Denise Richards' career. Mm-hmm. Why not? Why don't we send them? Exactly. Script? Why, Why don't we send them? Charlie Sheen as the villain. Start writing, guys. Start writing. What's the movie called? Winning. Um, yeah. <laughs> no. Sharknado winning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, 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 no. So you're not. You're not looking at this wrong. Yeah, what about like Sharknado, yeah. global swarming? Yeah. <laughs> listen, listen. You're not taking me seriously. <laughs> I think there's mileage in this. Okay, we take two of these, you know, much loved characters, much loved. Let's be honest. We put Christmas Jones in with Stanley. What was his name? Stanley somebody. I- I think so, yeah. I just went immediately to Stanley Ipkiss and I realized that was the mask, so never mind. <laughs> I think they're both of their time. In the 90s, they both would have worked. Anyway, whatever. We're playing silly, but this this film is silly. 
I can't just like something because it's James Bond. Like Ebert says, if the formula works, the film works. I, I can understand that populist idea. And I think actually at heart, I'm quite populist about it. Like I will apologize for things and I'll defend things that I know objectively might be shit in terms of cinema. But I just can't, I cannot, I just cannot chew the mouthful that this film wants me to. I find that there's, it's just, it's so hard to taste and enjoy the different things going on because I'm choking on so much stimulus. I'm choking on so much set piece. I'm choking on so much explosion and an and, and unlikelihood. And it's just, the film is making me gorge. And I, I don't, I, I don't know, man. There's too fucking much in this movie for me to enjoy it. Does that make any sense? Like I'm burnt well, out, I'm burnt I, out. I Josh and I are kind I of we we kind of have the same opinion. We were watching it. Well, you'll you'll see the way you know we go through our, our money pennies and uh, there's right. a lot of things. Well, you'll see. Anyways, okay. but yeah, yeah. I, I guess I'm just I, eager. I, I guess I'm just eager to hear your guys' opinions on it. So well done on the plot summary, Jaybird. Yeah, that was a good good right. work through that. Uh, and I mean it too because this is not an easy film to understand to no. try to sit down and do that. Um, you've helped me a little bit, and I've done my research, but there's still still problems here with this film so shall we shall we get into it sure before we get into the i guess into the story and doing our money pennies we have uh, jeff he's going to be talking about some of the real life foundations that we see in the, that we saw in the film, such as like Azerbaijan oil industry, and I guess the history of, of that area with the British Empire and and so on and so forth. Indeed. So one kind of little neat tidbit, if you want to sort of relate Azerbaijan and, and oil to the film uh, film industry and and movies, is uh, there was a, a movie called The Oil Gush of Balakani. Pardon my pronunciation, uh, and it was a film that was directed by an oil pioneer. In uh, in 1898, and it present and it premiered at the International Paris uh, Exhibition on August 4th, 1898, and it was uh, shot on 30 35 millimeter film at the with the Lumiere Cinema Cinemagraph. And 1898. It was 30, 1898. So wow. one of the, yeah, that, so it's very that. very early film, and it was uh, 30 seconds, and it was actually of an Azerbaijani uh, oil uh, spewing uh, like an oil derrick. So that's kind of neat. A very early film. I mean, you know, it's very, very early. Um, so one thing I just kind of wanted to mention is uh, Azerbaijan is interesting. You don't hear about it a lot. But what everyone knows about Azerbaijan being in the Caspian, that area, is that obviously it's oil. And that's where Russia has kind of uh, cradled that and uh, and kept it, you know, within its grasp for, for many, many, many years because of the importance of oil. Um, and so... Azerbaijan was actually a part of, of Iran up until the Russian Russia-Persian War, which is one I know that we're all very aware of. <laughs> and it was in 1804 to 1813. Uh, Russia strong-armed their way in, and they took it. And so since then, Russia has you know basically occupied uh, Azerbaijan up until obviously the fall of the Soviet uh, fall of the Soviet Union. I mean that's where pr- predominantly most of the oil for Russia comes out of there. What's interesting with their uh, the relationship between Azerbaijan and Russia is, you know, you, as you can imagine, it's pretty um, <laughs> touch and go. Mm-hmm. So, for example, 
1806, the Russian Empire occupied the Baku Kananate and took uh, monopolistic control of the oil production. So Russia had taken over the country, I guess, within that war between 1803 and 1814, but they actually took control of the oil in 1806. Later, exclusive rights to produce oil were given to individuals, thereby creating the Persian, uh, I can't pronounce this, but Arctobachina lease system. And in this year, all oil sources of Abersharan, Guba, and Salyan belonging to Baku Kanite are requisitioned and declared state assets of Russia. That's just a lot of jibber-jabber saying that Russia owns all of those, so all the oil is theirs. Okay, And uh, something that's, uh, again, like I said, Russia and Azerbaijan had a very complicated relationship, you know, dating back to the 1800s up until, you know, the, the 20th century. They obviously were probably not fans of them because they had been conquered by them and, and basically just using them for all their minerals and oil. Um, and so Russia did the usual thing Russia does is that they, uh, they kind of bleed them dry. After the Tsar's conquest of 1828, Azerbaijan suffered the Imperial Russian administrative policy. The Tsar tried by all means to create a ruling class, bestowing specific groups of society with land inheriting rights and other privileges, which is something that they, Russia likes to do. Um, to their chagrin. Exactly. Now, something that's, uh, you know, in the last 20 years, so this is like in the 90s, which, so it's still kind of relevant in regards to the time of the world is not enough. In the last 20 years, the relations between Russia and Azerbaijan have mostly been about oil. In 1994, Putin, inspired by the Primakov Doctrine, uh, devised an engagement strategy for the region. And basically, it's just how they're going to take it all over. Uh, Russia shall be the only intermediary between the uh, Caucasus republics and the external partners. No other country shall be allowed to lay down significant influence in the region. Very Russia. Mm-hmm. Under no circumstance, the region shall become a threat for Russian uh, hinterland. Russia shall promote positive regional integration as a strategic resource for Kremlin's regional needs. So as you can see, they're just trying to, again, still monopolize all that stuff. To get off that, I'm going to get into sort of a military part of this. It's still related to Russia, obviously. Ongoing with the Russian uh, and the oil was uh, a reference that we can kind of bring back to the James Bond world is... um, Around the time of the Great Game, when Brit- Britain and Russia were, were vying for power of Persia, and that and that's sort of that area in India where people, you know, they were trying to close in on, on different areas within Central Asia for uh, power. The British Admiralty wanted to kind of see if they can get uh, British power to have oil, and so they actually had asked um, Sidney Riley to go and uh, and try and and help out with convincing the uh, oil baron. Um, I'm trying to find his name right now. <laughs> William Knox Darcy. Um, Britain was like, hey, look, you know, we need to, we want to have, uh, we need some kind of influence in the in the Caspian area with oil. And so, because they feared the French and the Russians would take over the concession and they'd have, and you know, they would have major influence in Persia in that area. And then Britain would have very little. So they decided to intervene and, and play matchmaker. And so they brought Sidney Riley, who, and again, it alleged that he he had done this great sort of disguise um, sort of ruse where he ruse where he dressed up like a a priest and uh, convinced Darcy who was religious um, to sell the majority of the concession to a good Christian uh, enterprise and basically he, he struck up a deal and he and he he was talking to him in between when Darcy was talking to the Rothschilds we all know how rich the Rothschilds are and he actually did convince him to give the British. And London, the 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 oil, and that was called it was called the Anglo 
Persian Oil Company, but I believe that it is still kind of related to British Petroleum, which we all know about today. Oh, wow. Well, the interesting thing I wanted to start to bring back to, to James Bond is that uh, they had asked uh, Fleming about Riley, and he's like, James Bond is just a piece of nonsense I dreamed up. He's not a Sidney Riley, you know, which I think is kind of funny. I mean, I'm not trying to poop on, uh, you know, James Bond, but it's funny because everyone, like, when people go through MI, MI6 in training and all that, there's, there's, all, there's all these, like, crazy stories. The thing is, with Sidney Riley, and what's nuts is that even today, people don't know how much is real and how much is fake because he did so many random things. Uh, and just with his stories are so crazy, just like almost to the almost like a like a bad spy movie. You just think that's that's ridiculous. Some of Riley's stuff was actually published in the papers like after he had died, but like in the in the 30s and stuff like that. When there were still rumors that he was alive, there were still rumors in world during World War II that they someone saw him somewhere. But he he they later they had said that he was killed by. Uh, uh, well, I guess at that point it would be uh, G, GPU or OGPU. Agents in the like about they never 19... saw him again. Just kind of well, basically, yeah, he, yeah, he was he was snookered into going back because he read, he read this letter from a guy who was actually uh, like a double agent, and then they ended up killing him at the border. I think of Finland is what they say, but, okay. uh, but no, you're you're right. I mean, because uh, you were saying that his story is sensationalized, and, and so Riley's stuff was kind of sensationalized even at an early time, like in the early 30s. Like his stuff was some of his. Um, you know, exploits were actually written down. And I think with one of them, his ex-wife had actually uh, written into the paper with some of them too. Some of them not true. Again, that's the thing is like with a lot of his stuff, it's sort of like word of mouth. And so you never know because he was, even the British didn't really fully trust him. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. All these untold it, stories, hey? It is. And the other thing is I think another part of like Bond gambling is a is a, is a nod to Sidney Riley as well because he was a... Like gambling was a, he, he was, I don't think he was an alcoholic, but he was definitely, definitely a gambler. And he, and so was Ian Fleming though too. Oh yeah. So, so I would see, I could see both of them. Yes, you're right. Fleming is too, of course. But Riley, I mean, he, he would like ask them for an exorbitant amount of money and he would lose it like millions of pounds in like the early 1900s. Like, you know, and he would lose it in gambling and stuff. He, he would take the money that he would do for missions and he would like lose it, you know. <laughs> Um, and just sorry, sorry. Going forward, um, you know, when we were seeing the the scene with the skiing scene um, with uh, Electra and Bond, uh, and then obviously seeing like the uh, the new the Newfoundland Air Force and the big great testicle, that's right. Yeah, which which did feature in Diamonds Are Forever too. Yeah, no, I I know. I was thinking that the little hamster wheel coming out of the water. Yeah, that's I remember. Cool. I remember you going on about that in that episode, Jeff. But you know, like a testicle in that. It was almost like a, no. a geodesic hamster. To be honest, ball. it kind of looked. I thought this thing looked like the Death Star. Okay. But anyways, um, so the, the the whole thing with Electra's henchman, I was like, huh, okay. And then, it, what got my what got my gears going was um, when uh, oh, Va- Valentin was like, he saw like the, the scarf or whatever. Yeah, the like scarf. The I was like, nose. oh. Yeah. So then I kind of you know I looked into that, and there was a group. Well, I mean, they don't have the flying skidoos, but. I tried to look into special Spetsnaz, like anti-nuclear groups, and there was a group called uh, Spets Group of V, also called Vimple, which is related to a Dutch Dutch name. Um, so the unit was created in 1981 by a KGB uh, major general, and they were a dedicated Spetsnaz unit specialized in deep penetration, sabotage, universal uh, direct and covert action, and they also uh, protected embassies and, and espionage agents. Um, but they also were trained in um, specifically in counterterrorism 
and they would also be deployed where there was nuclear sites and they had specific training uh, on how to, uh, you know, fight uh, units that were around and dealt with nuclear facilities and nuclear uh you know, weapons and that kind of stuff. They use Nerf guns just to make sure. Yeah, Nerf guns. That's what they practice with. Exactly. Um, and apparently this, that unit was, was used. I don't know if, if you remember the, the Chechen, like that, that school that was um, raided by the, by the Russians and, and, and during the, the, the Chechen battles in the early two thousands. But this was the group that actually took out the, the Chechen guys that when they killed all those kids in that school, unfortunately, but apparently these guys were the ones that actually took them out. Oh, Apparently, these are these guys are kind of like the the Rainbow Six or the, if you will, or uh, you know the Navy SEALs of um, special like uh, KGB uh, FSB GRU units. So now again, it's a stretch, but I'm saying that if there's going to be guys that I, I was just thinking of her henchmen, if they're kind of you know ex Russian soldiers, this is this was my logic is that maybe she would have these kind of guys. That's what I was thinking. Okay, I mean that that is really being generous. I was. Yes. We have to be generous, really. With this film, yes. We, we have to, and with all of these films, we have to be. And and if we're going to play the context of them, and I suppose for world building, when we eventually come to, to uh, when we come to create and patent our own James Bond series of board games, we're going to want all these details. Exactly. Absolutely. Uh, and just to go back to to the the Baku and the, and the oil, I just it's it's really interesting, and obviously it always comes back to, you know oil and money and it's really interesting just to see how how those countries that are just sort of like exploited for their for their um you know oil and their other the other minerals that they have there so i feel bad for these countries you know like they just go in and they just gouge everything out so was robert king kind of a stand-in for british imperialism and electra's family was like uh, symbolic of of losing that claim to their own land by colonialists you could say that i mean i could that it does kind of make sense looking like after this research i do see that but uh yeah um and i just kind of i really like that kind of note about the the little uh that little film 30 second film the That's oil really gush, yeah. the oil gush in Balkani. There you go. I think that Apted would know that stuff because he was a documentary filmmaker, wasn't he, Josh? And yes, a lot of what he had done in wanting to bring these locales to the story stemmed from his own kind of experiences in these places, though they had never really been filmed in quite this way for motion pictures, you know, yeah. for series I, stuff. Anyway, I, that was that was cool. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. That was very informative, and uh, and kind of you know it fleshed out a, a couple of things in the story, and and uh, it, I think I think it promotes the world building that the broccoli broccoli was trying to convey. Yeah, I, th- I well, that's what I was hoping to do, to and extent. it's I just it's it's fun when you can kind of extrapolate a little bit about you know what's going around going on around and see if if this is what they were trying to portray, mm-hmm. and I think it was. <laughs> so, is the world not enough, or is the world too much? Let's mm. get into the let's get into uh, that to our money pennies. Yes. All right, let's get into our money pennies. Uh, do you want me to start? Because sure, for for me, this world was too much. Um, <laughs> as I said, as I said earlier, uh, and it probably gave away no secrets. This this film is just it's too suffocated with its own content. And yep. for me, for me personally, of course, this is all personal boys. I'm looking forward to uh, to you being wrong in a few moments if you indeed side differently to me. But okay, challenge I, accepted. Challenge accepted. I, fi- I find that there's, there's way too much going on here for, for me. I enjoy 
really enjoy a lot of different parts of it, but yeah, sure. But I don't I don't like the whole. I, I feel yeah, as this, though I this feel as though parts doesn't add up. Well, that's how I feel. I mean, I like in terms of story first. Okay, M's kidnapping is is cool. I like that stuff. I think there's something you can do with M being kidnapped. I don't mind that the king relationship. Uh, I don't. I don't think though that for someone who was potentially in a relationship, even if it were college, with uh, with um, uh, Electra's father, because she does intimate. You know, she suggests that. Um, I don't think that the way the M Electra relationship bounces is quite believable. Like she never refers to her in name, you know, for someone she knows so well, it's all very weird. Um, I like the Stockholm syndrome, or I guess we have to call it a Stockholm romance in this film because it's not really the syndrome technically, you know, she doesn't take on Renard so much as Renard, you know, what is the reverse Stockholm? What is it when it's reverse Stockholm syndrome, I guess you could say. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Well, that, that's what we got going on here. I, th- I think that there's something really cool and clever and actually quite sophisticated you could do in a plot with that. I'm not sure that they've nailed it out here. I, I, so I like I like those things in the story. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I like where the story goes. I, the I like the oil stuff. The intention was good. But, the intention you know, was good, yeah, but then the we get... You know, road to hell. <laughs> road to hell, yeah. yeah. I don't know we go as far as hell, but... You know, the yeah. oil baroness destroying Istanbul. I found that boring and too big to care about. Magic Renard, the, the fucking comic book villain with the bullet-ridden brain. Yeah. Like, that's yeah, boring that's like a, to me. That's like but, an origin story like Stan Lee would I, write I or just, something. I just wish like, they didn't say... It makes say, you stronger? Yeah, that part, I just wish. <laughs> like, as I was literally picturing the yellow thought, like, the, the narration bubble in, like, a, you know, in a square of Stan Lee. It's like, I'll, you don't need to say that. Yep. Yeah. yeah, you're right. It is kind of Stan Lee um, foundation stuff. But, you know, it, it, then again, you could say that in terms of acting, um, Robert Carlyle, Robert Carlyle was, knocked, it, knocked it out of the park because oh, he did, he, he did sure. actually act like someone who had a bullet in their head. I thought he was absolutely terrible in this film. Um, I didn't like him at all. Oh, you didn't? I, oh. No, I didn't. I thought he was dull. I'd seen him in other things. He lacks, he, he just lacked any like real in, I, I didn't. I didn't like him. I just didn't well, like him. That's because he couldn't feel anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could feel. I could feel. So okay, is that the is that the ultimate excuse for the character, no. right? Like he no, couldn't no. feel, no. so he couldn't act. Now, Magic Renard, the bullet ridden. No, he's not interesting to me. Bond's throwaway pleasure with um, Christmas Jones is total crap. Even though I yeah. suppose it is more in in line with the early Bond films, where you know you can't see nor are you encouraged to see 007 actually having a plausible relationship with the majority of these girls. They're just kind of fodder for the the cathartic, uh, you know, what we 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 just almost just died endings, right? Like let's just have yeah. sex now because we almost just died. So there are way too many data dumps in this film. Really heavy here. Uh, I found it really interesting listening to the the audio commentary by the director. He kept coming back to this same quote. We had so much story to tell. We had so much story to tell. I needed this. I needed this. Like, why? Why did you need to tell the story? Why can't you strip down the script a bit? Make it a bit simpler. Make it about M's kidnapping. Make it about the reverse Stockholm syndrome. But a nuclear submarine does not have to come in here. You know, it just doesn't need to be here. Yeah. yeah. Is it like, oh, because it's Bond, they have to like... Pull out a nuclear submarine or something. Well, yes. they had to I think you're stakes, right, Jeff. Right? They had to raise the stakes. I mean, yeah, but I mean, they had to. You're right. You guys are both right. They had to raise the stakes, but unfortunately, Pierce Brosnan, who I agree with you, Jeff, I think as I'm watching rewatching these films, I think he is 
I think he plays Bond incredibly Ooh. well. Oh, I really, does. really yeah. like him as his Bond. Oh, but yeah. his his yeah. scripts are terrible. They ask yes. him they yeah. ask him to be an old Bond, but also a deep yes. Bond and an exceptionally shallow Bond with all yeah. of the product placement and the the yuck yuck like jokes they give around him. him. Liners. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. It's it's really it's really unfortunate that he's here now because if he did take over from Moore in the mid '80s, man, he could have been something really really special. Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. For and sure. I'm not saying that those movies weren't batshit crazy no, no. either, but they yeah. were a little different. You know, like yeah. getting him in a in a less techno engaged role might have been really cool. Uh, or at, at a less techno-engaged time might have been really cool. Like, I wonder what Brosnan would have been like in A View to a Kill. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or or even, like, uh, The Living Daylights, although Dalton did a yes. really good job there. Uh, right, just to finish up here on the story, Sorry, guys, yeah, 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 um, yeah. I found it too confusing, too data-dumped, uh, and too too full of stuff like I, I keep coming back to this idea of a mouthful of food you know like it is really hard to enjoy what i'm eating when i'm I, i've got so much stuff in my cheeks you know but how like, can i ex, ex, and also for me how can i buy into like you know the vastness of the oil industry storyline being told here when russia's made to look like the smallest town i mean so just coincidentally valentin zukowski is in baku where the main story is taking place and it's just coincidentally that his nephew owns the russian sub or is it, it just is, happens is the to be captain of the russian sub in the cast and it's just the, the coincidences that they kind of threw in there oh, really ham- was ham-fisted in my opinion oh yeah it is ham-fisted and that's okay in a sense because as we have all said before these bond films you've got to really as that critic yes. said you've got to take these with a shaker of salt not a pinch and i'm happy to do that if you're not trying to tell me this shit's real and that's the problem with these brosnan films they're always they're always trying to tell you the gravitas the seriousness the believability of this while at the same time he's running around like like a marvel agent uh trying to take down bullet magic man like i i, I just find that that's really I, dumb oh sure. yeah it's exactly and the, it's the, good, thing, it's good... the thing is is like if they just hadn't like honestly with with renard if they just didn't say he gets stronger if you just say like you know what he's got a bullet mm. in his head uh and it, like leave it like leave it to the audience to kind of figure out that okay he's got a bullet in his head so you know okay that's pretty maybe he's crazy you know but you don't need to say and he keeps getting stronger and he doesn't right. feel anything it's yeah. like are you serious right now <laughs> yeah. does he also no, have right. all the lottery numbers does he have all does he have like the the you know the the, the sports book from like back to the future 2 as well like come on <laughs> does he, you know? i thought of that <laughs> come on maybe juice well i tell you something else i i didn't didn't think about this when i was watching the film only afterwards when i was kind of processing it like and I'm interested to see what you guys think about this because from a story's point of view as I've said I find that this is way too full of stuff and we get information dumped on us and the director admits you know I just we had to keep working through the story I have to keep getting a story out here do you not think that this film would have would have been improved and maybe it wasn't part of storytelling in the 90s but don't you think that this film could have benefited from flashback episodes Possibly, I think like the, whole... the kidnapping thing, which you know, I'm waiting yeah. 40 minutes to have explained to me. Or do you think that would have been too revealing for the? Uh oh, Electra's actually the big bad. In case the name didn't give it away, like, yeah, well, revenging her father, right? But maybe, yeah. but what if, but what if there was like a really short scene of M and the father? Yeah, maybe it maybe a talking a dialogue. Okay, like a dialogue, and because and, yeah, I, that's I a good talking. point, Jeff. That's a really good point. Maybe if they just spoke a bit more. Because that way, it, yeah. you wouldn't necessarily have to show Electra. But you could get the history of the kidnapping taken out a little more. 
Yeah. yeah also, Although, I, would like, I would like the scene between. I've seen, seen a good scene before the reveal of Electra being evil, uh, with Bond, with um, M and Electra yeah. kind of showing maybe like almost like a surrogate daughter relationship. Yeah. But then M mentions, you know, in this in the film about how <laughs> against every maternal instinct that she had, she said she wanted to use Electra as bait, right? And I guess that's something she was dealing with. Mm-hmm. But we were, I was I was talking to Jeff about this, and I was thinking about how overt it is. Electra is in cahoots with Renard. The whole, you know, like the shoulder touch Ooh. and then the whole like that catchphrase, right? And I think the moment you, the fact that they introduced Christmas Jones before the fact the lecture is revealed to be the villain yeah. automatically tells you as a viewer that, okay, there's there's the new Bond girl. There's, so, there's, 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 here's the second Bond girl. So, and if we know the rules of the Bond formula, I mean, then the first girl is, is either disposable or, or going to die. Bad, yeah. Or bad. Yeah. Or, or, or going to die. Disposable exactly. or bad. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Disposable or bad. So then automatically, Electra's oomph is taken out of the film so that her reveal is being bad. It's not, it's not a surprise, and it's, and it's like ho-hum, right? But think about the scene now. If there was just that shoulder touch and Bond not fully aware that Electra and Renard are in cahoots, that it's written believably that he yeah, does feel some kind of tr- like, tr- like Tracy-like attachment to the girl. And then all of a sudden, you have that scene where everything where the Bond goes off in the pipeline, uh, and, all, and then all of a sudden, you know, Electra gives M the, the brooch and it's her father's brooch. And then oh, you're, you're like, oh my God, she is the one on the inside. And then it kills yeah. everyone. I, I think that would have been a way, far better, better. Re- reveal in my opinion. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah, if they only show like, the, they, they had the pin earlier and I was like, okay. And there's just so many things. Like, I guess I'll talk about when I get into my, my, my scoring, but yeah. And there's yeah, like two I, don't, I don't know. I just think that could, that could have been structured in a different oh, way, way in better. my opinion. Yeah. I also think that there had too many set pieces um, yeah, that, that's coming back to what I was trying to say about story is that there yeah. is just let, let, let me finish through my stuff and sure, then I'll yeah, just turn yeah, it yeah. over to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I gave the story a failing mark. It's the first time I fail a story in the entire series. I was thinking five, but then I was thinking I was thinking five because I'm a Bond fan and I can't fail a story. Uh, we have had full stories before. We've had parts of stories that don't work. We've had issues with there's this story going on and then there's this one that I'm really not interested in. But what I think we've got here is a story that just doesn't know when to quit. There's too much chalk into it for me as a viewer I, I like the adventure I like the fun stuff but there was it, it came a point and I'm telling you it came early guys where I wasn't interested in any more explosions because I didn't have a fucking clue what was going on and although like I, I although I like the sensationalism of these these things the adventure the explosion the action I can't just sustain and myself and my interest on that i need something more i gotta hold on to something and i know bond is here doing something but i I found it really challenging to follow this oil pipeline thing uh denise richards comes in like like a meteor and like destroys the landscape of my viewing i didn't understand you know a lot of stuff each line she says stops the movie short yeah like it just it just felt like she was just reading like she was like someone was just like, I don't know, she was just reading, like, a line. Like, you could see her, like, reading a cue card. No, I'm not saying she, like, but, anyways, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Just the unbelievability of her character, we've already talked about a little bit, but I, I don't understand why she, as an American doctor, or as an American physicist, is there. Wouldn't they have someone of their own nation to be in doing this work? Like, yeah. I just I just don't get her place in the whole fucking thing. If you want to shoehorn another Bond girl in, come on, do it differently. Do it a different way. You don't have to bring her well, in as a nuclear yeah. scientist who actually doesn't do anything. Yep. I was going to say, even if you had just mentioned that, like, you know, she or, like, her parents are from Kazakhstan or something, or, like, she's, like, she has some kind of tie to the region... And then yeah, it, maybe it, she it, was. Maybe she's one of uh, Zukovsky's girls who turns or something. I don't know. Like, 
Yeah, that works. I, I don't know. I, I just don't understand her. She's she's a big MacGuffin. Her character is a MacGuffin. Yeah. You keep oh, following yeah. her thinking it's leading you somewhere, and it just isn't. Anyway, I gave this story a four overall, and I didn't do it for um, I didn't do it for spectacle. I did it because I truly feel like this story fails. It failed me as a viewer. I've seen this film a couple times now. I fail to properly understand why they're going the way they are. It is too much for me personally. But I I appreciate other people like that. You know, they like their films full of stuff and full of explosions, and that's the Bond thing. And Brosnan is unfortunately at the receiving end of some really bad scripts, and that's just the way it is. Acting, I went for a six overall. Coltrane and Brosnan stand out for me. M has some good scenes, but ultimately she's not really a factor of great interest here. Plot she is important, but she's not really acting with with great nuance and sophistication like we've seen in the past and we'll see again in the future. I just think she's okay here, you know. Uh, Marceau is good. I like Sophie Marceau in this film. Carlisle I found was really bad. I'm not into his character. I've seen yep. him play much better in other films. Uh, you know, I don't think he's a better or a, I don't think he's a, a worse actor than Sean Bean, but I tell you what, if you put both of them on a scale of Bond villains, Trevelyan is way heavier and more interesting. He, he just... Oh, yeah. Of course. And the, double, the double Asian actor aspect is better too right yeah but carlisle's performance in terms of acting like the and maybe this this is i don't know i just think like here's some guy who was popular at the time let's get him into a bond film instead of thinking of writing a film role for an actor who can really do something because robert carlisle can really do stuff you know and they they don't give him much to do he does walk around like a zombie for most of this film and i i you know you know he didn't feel me i didn't feel him uh, Before it comes out, I, I want to mention, though, uh, Bond 25, Rami Alec just won an Oscar for an Academy Award, and now he's supposedly going to play some kind of villainous role in the new Bond film. Will this be another example of that? We shall see. Maybe. Maybe so. I, I've been dogging on, as everybody does, Denise Richards an awful lot. I would just probably, I, I feel as though it's necessary for me to say, and I wrote these down in my, my very first impressions of Denise Richards coming back to study this film. I said her first appearance isn't terrible. I, oh, yeah, so I, said, that, that. I said she yeah. plays she plays her role at the start, playing confidently. I think she's appealing. She's obviously very attractive. But why would she be there? That was my first question. Like, why couldn't they have found someone else in there and, and get her in the film in a different way where she can be just eye, kind, eye candy? Like the way, I don't know. It's like American audiences. I think they uh, wanted to yeah. get the North American yeah. audiences into the film. Because who would actually believe an American? Like a young, she, she, I mean she was 20 something would be like a, you know, like there and as it was Kazakhstan, right? Where she was correct. Yeah. That's yeah. Where they were. yeah. I mean, I, it doesn't really, like, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, she's, of, she's not good, but she doesn't sink the ship entirely for me. No, she doesn't. No. You're right. She's not, she's not as terrible as I think I might've felt at the time, you know, uh, she's not good, but she's not the worst thing about this film for she's, me. No, she's not going to ruin not. this film for me and doesn't, she doesn't ruin it, but her character's, uh, import is very questionable and I, I don't know man like I don't get it I think it's the writing that ruins the movie not uh, mm-hmm. it is that's it's the writing it's, it is the writing that, that ruins the movie it's not one actor and, and let's point out too that like Michael Apted he's directed like dramatic films like the coal miner's daughter and 
you know, gorillas in the mists and whatnot. So this is an actor who likes performances. He likes performances from women in particular. So he's a very dramatic type of actor. I found that even though his action scenes, some of them were pretty exciting, they were also very rudimentary shot. I never got any, even though the boat chase was cool, I never got any real flair from it. Yeah. Like I saw like in yeah. earlier Bond films, you know, like in, mm. uh, say, Free Your Eyes, like the boat chase and the, 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 the bike chase on ski and the ski chase and uh, Free Your Eyes Only or anything from my Majesty's Secret Service or the car chase in Goldfinger or even into extending some of the Craig films or Tomorrow Never Dies even. I, I found that Apted just, just kind of just shocked him like, okay, I'm filming an action scene. But I found that he was more interested in the character scenes, but he also had to film action sequences, which I guess he wasn't really huge on. Uh, and well, maybe he overcompensated pretty- because there's way yeah. too many of those in here. We go from one to the next set piece, yeah. and there's so many set pieces that I can't actually focus on any one of them. And this is part of my atmosphere scoring too. But I'll let you finish your point there, buddy. Yeah. So my point is, though, is that I just feel like this movie is like a Frankenstein. I think it Jeff is. used the word like yeah. it's a patchwork of different ideas and audience tar- targeting. Um, it doesn't feel confident in the story that it tells because it's not sure if the audience that they're trying to get to go for it will buy into it. Mm. And so that and therefore, even the, some of the dramatic scenes that would do, should work, they don't because they're not confident in telling them to the audience at hand. Yeah, fair. that's a fair point, man. That's a fair point. Uh, so I went six for my acting overall. Um, in terms of atmosphere, well, you know, there is some fun to be had here. I felt through yep. the costumes, the locales, but on a whole, and I keep coming back to this, the film for me is too loud. It's too busy. It's too over the top. It's furious. It's saturated with so many set pieces and explosions and, and rounds of ammunition that neither one of them really sticks out. Neither really sticks, stands out apart from the rest. Maybe... Maybe the boat chase does at the beginning because that's quite an impressive thing. But you, a, yeah. but you notice yeah. what we get there. We get establishing shots. The camera keeps cutting back to show me the river, the length of the, the landscape, and I can see the small thing. I can see the actual setting. I can see stuff moving upon that setting, and I like that sort of miniature look. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's well and shot, you, and it's interesting, yeah. and it's well it's scored. The, that's a good score yeah. section. That yeah. scene it feels like a different movie. If you, if you compare it to the rest of the movie... Or even like the, the you know the last the last half or um, it, it doesn't yeah it feels like a different movie and I did like I did like the Pinewood set the underground um, oh yeah that was good the, in Azerbaijan you know like the underground uh, the nuclear uh, what Kazakhstan yeah Kazakhstan help me what the fuck are they doing there again see I'm asking these questions so much chat about nuclear bombs and so much chat I don't know why Renard is there I have no fucking was, idea why he's there they're disarming all the nuclear weapons right it's a disarmament site yeah it's a and disarmament they're, site yeah, yeah. They're, they're disarming a nuclear missile so they that's why they're wearing those, like, those, those, those tracksuits yeah, 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 right yeah. because they're like people like experts on scene who, who, who are doing that right well so, I, I like that stuff and I thought that had I, I was really interested in, in giving that full credit but because the set is incredible, and so too is the is the caviar uh, factory set. Oh yeah, that, that was stuff that's, is that's, awesome too. But that's oh, yeah. incredible. I actually found that sequence actually went after the boat chase. That was like one of my yeah. favorite sequences oh, in yeah. the movie, the caviar factory scene. Absolutely. I think it could have been played up a little bit better. So that would have been a much bigger scene, and then we would have been, and then they could have easily cut out like some 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 other set pieces that they had in the film, like mm. the parahawk sequence. Oh. We did not need that at all. The skiing and, was good. I didn't movie. care about the parahawks. The, like the, skiing, they, was, the skiing was just them trying to get back the Bond nostalgia. No, no, you know? I, going back no, to no, Free yeah. Rise Only. It was, yeah. Months. It was yeah, totally fan service, yeah. Yeah, total fan service. And it wasn't necessary. And yeah. it was also confusing as heck. It wasn't edited very well. And the parahawks were just weird. And... Um, 
like all of a sudden Bond is on top of a cliff and jumps from the top and takes one of the Parahawks out, and then all of a sudden he's back on the slope again. Like I, I, I never got how that worked. Um, anyway, uh, that's uh, so my score then um, for atmosphere. If I'll just bring it back to me actually scoring uh, yes. before you guys go on and give me. Feel free to interrupt us as well. Yeah, of course. No, 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 I won't. That's fine. Um, I was sorry. I was raised properly. Uh, Whoa. I just threw that in there. Sorry. Uh huh. No, you're not. No, you're not. Was that laugh? <laughs> That's my Renard laugh. No, Renard's laugh would be. Uh, uh, yeah, he doesn't feel anything. <laughs> he doesn't feel anything. So, God, what a what an excuse. What a perfect performance for a dull actor. That, but he's not a dull actor, right? Where am I? Four with story. Uh, I keep coming back to this thing that Aft had said. You know about how we have so much story to tell. Well, I, I you know, oh, the other thing he said, speed was of the essence. Like, he always felt under pressure to get the story out. And I'm like, well, that's because your script is way too bogged down with different ideas. And as you said, Josh, uh, playing to the fans, never quite sure of what they're going to want. So let's put everything in there, including the kitchen sink, and, and they'll be happy, you know. This is a heavier and heavier, or like a balloon, you know, that fills up with so much hot air. Anyway, acting six, like, story like the pre, four. Like the, pre, uh... the, 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 the pre-title sequence. Yeah, yeah pre-title sequence, yeah. Atmosphere, I went five overall. Uh, that's a lower mark than I think the film deserves, but because there are some really nice things in here. Uh, and if we have time, we'll get on and talk about costumery and stuff like that. But I did all, just find it too loud, too busy, too over the top. And with so much going on, I could never really concentrate or take away one or two things that I really liked. Apart maybe from the boat chase, which I think was filmed with more care and slow kind of attention to details, you know, even though yeah. the, the speed is quite rapid in yeah. the scene. So that's that's me overall, guys. That's my lowest score, I think, for any of these films. I went 15 overall, and it's my first time in our in our series that I failed the story. Um, for me, as a viewer, uh, way too much happening. All these characters, uh, you know. And they were yeah, they were never properly flushed out. Some of those yeah. guys. Arkov, Davidoff, fuck off. You know that's that's where Bowman lies on this. <laughs> <laughs> right. One of you guys take over, please. I am spent. Oh, All right, I, I'll go into my uh, scoring then. So. Um, our money pennies, which of course we're rating everything out of 10, 10 money pennies, named after, of course, our favorite uh, M secretary, mm-hmm. whether it's Lois Maxwell, Caroline Bliss. Is it Julia Bond? Or is it Julia Bond? Or Samantha Bond Samantha, or Samantha Bond. Naomi Harris. In this case, Samantha Bond, of course. Yes. So I gave this story five. I'm going to say this uh, just up front. I thought the opening was excellent. It set up the story well. As soon as Bond takes Davidoff's place and infiltrates the, de- the decommissioned silo, the story begins to lag in the middle. Um, the reveal of Electra and Renard's relationship is not very subtle in its lead-up or its execution. The fact that we're introduced to Christmas Jones, I, I mentioned this earlier, you know, as a second Bond girl of the movie, we automatically know that Electra is going to be either the bad girl or the disposable girl, as you mentioned. Renard is built up, but he but takes second place, and we never feel the appropriate menace for his villain. He's just Electra's lapdog. He's boring, as you said. Like, he, he's very dull. Car- Carla does what he can with his script, but I don't think he's told to go over the way that he does. He's basically Electra's lapdog. They're trying to show them as star-crossed lovers or something halfway through the movie, and I don't think they build up to it in the right way, in my opinion. Um, a better script would have made that a really great reveal, as I've discussed earlier. I think the reason the script, the different audiences too. So you have Barbara Broccoli, won a movie about the oil industry. Mm-hmm. Then she calls in um, Purvis and Wade to, to do that for her. Then she gets Fierstein to come in and do the Bond parts. And then you also have Aptid's wife going over the script and making the female characters stronger. So you have all these different entities changing the script and molding it into something. So and I can see how it became like a Frankenstein mess in, mm-hmm. in a way. 
I found M is oh. really marginalized in this film. Yeah. You cannot see from her actions how she is the head of MI6. No. Like, nope. it's completely out of character in some instances ridiculous. compared to the Judy Dench that told Bond to go pump Paris for information and all of a sudden going 007, like as if she's like Bernard Lee or something like that from a yeah. Roger Moore film. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like why just, would she be surprised when yeah, it just, exactly. it's not consistent? Yeah, exactly. exactly. I can see. <laughs> I, I can even see like the the M that we love. The, the I think the, the Judy Dench from the Craig era, even I guess you could say, who's a much better character in my opinion. Um, I can see her, or even the Judy Dench from Goldeneye. I, I I can see her making a witticism about that whole sequence, in my opinion. Um, Brazen is strong, I think in in this film. Um, but I, he gets a terrible script, as you said. Um, and even though like I found that. But his inability to see through Electra, I think, is put some plot stupidity on his character. Like she literally changes yeah, the subject, she, yeah, that's, and he's like, oh. "Okay, I'll leave this to later because I have a, a wounded, a, a wounded bird thing in it, with, with this girl, right?" So, I, I, I don't know. I don't so, know. if people listening at home, how do you defeat James Bond, the uh, the world's best spy? Change the subject. Yes, that's right. It's all you got to do. Change the subject I and drive do. away. Yeah. Oh look, red ball. Oh, and there you go. <laughs> Goodbye, free world. Anyways, I found there's too many set pieces in the film that just kind of happen and they don't connect from scene to scene. Um, I found the boat chase, the caviar factory scene, and the submarine sequence in its essence was inspired. Yeah. Um, too many nods to old Bond. Too much puns. Too much psychological drama that's being forced or rushed. The film cannot find a balance. Uh, I gave the acting seven and a half. Despite some bad writing for plot reasons, Brazen's competent in the role and has some solid dramatic moments in regard to Electra. Uh, Marceau is great as a villain, but there is something about her performance prior to her reveal that's a little transparent. We're given in several interpretations of what, as to what Electra should be, who she is, but we can't reach terra firma with it. Um, and then, even then, as a villain, they don't know whether to make her like, is she a kinky sex freak? Is she an infantilized child who we supposed to feel sorry for? Like, there's so many different aspects of her character that they, that, that they just don't flesh out enough to give her, I guess, foundation or, or gravitas, I guess you could say. But then again, the problem is that they're trying to force too much gravitas when gravitas just kind of exists on its own. You know what I mean? Um, Carlisle is serviceable, but he's still pretty, pretty bland. Um, his writing subpar for an actor of his skill, that's for darn sure. Dench serviceable, and I, I hate to say that about Judy Dench, but she was serviceable in this. I think this is probably one of the. the sorry, I don't mean to interrupt Josh, but I was going to say uh, for role, even I'm not even just talking as M, but I'm saying roles that Judy Dench, Dench has played that I've seen. This is probably one of the worst roles I've seen her in. Yeah, I know that she's obviously she's playing M, and I've seen her in other, um, you know, the other films with her as M. But I'd say this is probably one of the worst I've seen her in a film, actually. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And you know, why I don't know if you explained this in your plot summary, Josh, but. It seems, and this is again, I, I'm coming back to, I guess, what plagues and bogs down a lot of these Brosnan films. They just seemed, they seemed so stuffed with plot filler. Like, what was the point in M signing him off work for him? Yeah. Just so that we could see a scene where the doctor fucks him and, and yeah. puts him back in action? Uh, like, yeah. is, that, is that the only reason? Because then she just puts him right back on the mission. That It's like, I feel like that's the problem with Brosnan's era. There's just so many little scenes that we were shoving in there for a bit of fun or a bit of fan service or a bit of filler, but it actually adds nothing to the film. No. And when, no. when one, one scene on itself or in and of itself is okay, but when you got 
10 of these in a movie it's just like okay what do i have to care about this or can i just yeah. ignore yeah, this or or what that's it. and m and m in this film you're right jeff m in this film is on the receiving end of some of that plot filler absolutely she is and, and she comes off as weak and impressionable in the movie i take offense to it actually yeah. <laughs> to be honest i love i love judy gench and i love her as m and i just is she really this is really a disservice to her anyways i'll get into that but yeah, yeah sorry I'm, right sorry yeah. josh let me go to denise richards eh, it is what it is um <laughs> yeah that's Bobby true Coltrane. that's right <laughs> is, yeah the solid in presence and charisma all the way through no no doubt but he's written poorly and he's forced into the narrative yeah and then also unceremoniously killed off and we're supposed to like buy the fact that you know that he shoots the bracelet off as like his last kind of great hurrah moment but it comes off as weak in my opinion uh, that's my feeling on, on the acting was that was that Kane gun was there not some variation of that in the original bond story casino royale Oh, you're right. When he shoots the back of the chair out, is that right? Well, they were going. They were going to shoot the back of his. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, chair out. I think that that's in place of the whole poisoning sequence that was mm. in the Casino Royale. Right. Right. Okay. Right. Um, yeah, yeah that, that's a good point. Good, good catch there on the Fleming side of things. So seven um, and a half for acting is still though. It's still a good mark, Josh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think seven and a half. Like, I think there was some good acting in the film, and it's the script that failed the actors, in my opinion, and that's why the story I gave a low mark, albeit a barely passing mark. But nah, that's how I feel. Um, the atmosphere I gave seven. I find that James Bond feel is there. Cue scenes with puns and jokes, though, that feels forced. Llewellyn was too old to take his role seriously at this point, in my opinion. And I found they made like R like a, I, I couldn't buy R as like a like yeah. a I know someone me either. Who's, who's professional. He's a yeah. clown. They, they made yeah. him a clown in that whole sequence. Yeah, they they did, a, yeah. But of, of jokes, yeah. and I, I found that was distracting. It was. It was. Yeah. Yeah. It's oh. like I don't get a proper introduction to you as a character because yeah. you are you are just cut entirely yeah. from Desmond Llewellyn's character, and you are now him. Like it's it's yeah. really weird, isn't it? That's what we want you to be. You don't have your own sense of humor. You have inherited his humor and his gags and his attitude. But you are actually one of the world's best comic actors. But we're not going to yeah. let you be that. No, exactly. Like they should let him be more like Archibald Leach, like in the Fish, Fish Called Wanda. You know, more of a straight mm -hmm. man in that way, right? Yeah. So they could have let him do something fun. Anyway, whatever. He's only yeah. in for two films. It's not like he's going to be bothering us for long. I think he improves a bit in uh, in Die Another Day. I, think I got. I can't remember. We'll see. I guess. Score is serviceable, um, but lacks the Barry feel. I disagree with that reviewer completely, by the way, with that modern tech sound that Arnold did so well with Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah, I it's agree with you. Yeah, the freshness yeah. of Tomorrow Never Dies, that there was a little something a little bit more interesting and maybe maybe um, experimental and daring with Tomorrow Never Dies, whereas here he's using a lot of it, but he's using it with, like, I don't know, this score does, it's okay. This score is okay. Yeah, it does have good moments, but it isn't, I don't know. There's just something a little more ballsy about Tomorrow Never Dies, where I think I maybe agree. stripped down and naked, not not as not as um, not as safe. Is that does that make any sense? Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I, I definitely agree. I think I like the I like Arnold's electric theme. I think it works well for her character. Um, but I found that like the best cues were definitely the boat chase sequence. Yeah. That whole one is that whole sequence is scored fantastically. Mm -hmm. um, I found the caviar factory yeah, sequence was actually was scored really good. They yep. used the Bond theme it so was. well in that. They did. And um, the summer and some of the music like in the submarine sequence and also in the Kazakhstan uh, facility, I thought was really good action film. But then the rest of it I found was just kind of like you know it's kind of what Arnold kind of get, gets into with the Craig era in his first two films there. They're kind of just like. Just not as good as Tomorrow Never Dies. <laughs> um, 
there wasn't a lot of terms of style in production in mm-hmm. production or cinematography. Um, however, the Azerbaijan and Istanbul had a kind of, had that Bondian travelogue feel, although albeit not a lot. Um, the gadgets were cool, like the Q boat, uh, the Batman wristwatch trick. Uh, the x-ray glasses were overkill, in my opinion, not necessary. Yeah. And the Parahawks were just ridiculous. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the x-ray glasses were just a, let's get this cool gadget in here. It serviced nothing. But that being said, I like it would glasses. be. Yeah, me too. I was just I about like, to say that. This, this yeah, would probably like, be on a, on a list of my top 15, 10 gadgets from the series. I really do like these. They are cool. Yeah, I just felt they could have been used in, in, a, in a better in a better fashion in the movie, though. Like, he just used it to see who has you know guns or who's who's the bodyguards in the casino. But I found that like, but they they played. That's why he was using them. Okay, I thought that yeah. was an accidental discovery. I've seen Robert Downey Jr. with glasses like that when he goes to the Oscars. Now I understand. <laughs> now you know why. Yeah. <laughs> to see so, who the bodyguards are, of course. Yeah, yeah, exactly, sure. exactly. And I think they kind of, they did that okay, I suppose, but uh, I don't know, it just didn't work in this film for me, like a lot of things did. So uh, yeah, hodgepodge of our Frankenstein, patchwork, whatever you want, um, that's, that's a rule is not enough when it comes to all three money penny categories, in my opinion. That's a 19.5 for you, it's a 15 uh, for me, and Jeff, you're the last to score, buddy. Okay, so I'll be honest with you. A lot of the stuff Josh said is a lot like I, I'm pretty much the same, but because Josh and I had been discussing this over the last week, and so sure. we've been kind of going back and forth. So if I'm repeating what Josh is saying, it's not because I don't have my own brain. It's because we we, we agreed. Um, it's because so he already he, stole your good ideas, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I want to say it was a really strong but long opening. And like obviously, you know, because we were talking, you know, man, that's a pretty long opening. So we looked it up and, uh, you know, it was obviously the longest pre-title sequence. And uh, I really – I loved the boat and I felt like it was like Batman. Uh, so I thought – anyways, I thought that was – it was really strong opening. The only – what I kept saying to Josh was that I felt this movie underwhelming is what it was. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of like – there were some good aspects to it, but I just felt overall like it's just the middle. Like the way I was thinking about describing it is it's like a, a really thick, gross, like burger, like a diner burger. Where if you think about the plot of the, <laughs> you know, the first the first half is the top bun. OK, the middle is all the gross like toppings and the greasy, like undercooked, like actual patty. And then the end. OK, fine. You know, the the, the under part, the, the bottom bun is all greasy and soaked. Yeah. So the, 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 the most solid part of the whole thing is the top bun because it has a toothpick in it. And the Daniel Mai is the flatulence that comes from that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Funny yeah. how we both chose food metaphors to express our, our feelings about this right? film. So there's, yeah. So the, anyways, that was a terrible one. But my point is, it's no, it like, wasn't. It, it made sense it, to me. It really is a Frankenstein. And it's just the middle. It's just there's too much going on. Uh, the thing I really – and again, I, like I was saying I, when I, I piped in to both of you guys saying I, I really took offense to how uh, M was just so poorly written. you know. And, and the, the, what, a refreshing thing was having having Judy Dench as M being a female M in the, you know, the, the 90s and early 2000s uh, Bond movies with, with Brosnan, that, that, that revitalization of, of the Bond movies, uh, this is a real disservice because she – you know she's a real firecracker and you know you don't have to guess what she's thinking but this movie and even like when she was like in this in the in the jail cell like my god she's trying to get the stupid clock i'm like oh my god like it's just it, it was it was garbage uh and i'm not talking like you know shirley manson here like uh or, you know like 
it's, it, there's so many things that I was like, it just, it, it bothered me because Emma's such a great character. And so I just felt like her lines and, and how she, how they, they wrote her in this was like complete trash compared to what she normally is. So that, I, that, that got me right off the bat. I was like, oh, this is not good. I don't like where this is going. I really also didn't like how, uh, with John Cleese, and we all know that John Cleese is, you know, yeah, he's a mystery of silly walks. He's a fantastic British comedian with Monty Python and, and other films like, you know, Fierce Creatures, all that kind of stuff. So we know that he's a comedic actor and he's a physical actor. Um, but I don't like how it was almost like Bond and, and Q, one of the first times they actually agree with each other, and, and other than when they were doing the the, the Dwight K. Schrute um the the face the the computer where they're doing like the facial reconstruction yeah. there yeah yeah um they were really making fun of R like you know they were just kind of like making fun of him right off the bat like you know I was like okay you're telling me the guy doesn't know to open the door mm-hmm. yeah like, he's yeah. walking around he looked like a penguin he was stuck like you know like a wind up toy so I just I was like okay right off the bat you're 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 cutting him you know like it just doesn't make sense so I didn't like how they right off the bat they made R too goofy but isn't that funny though i mean just just as an example of how different in tone the, the series is about to turn where the goofiness about q's usefulness and the q branch is totally in bond's head but revealed to be wrong when ben wishaw's q yeah. reveals himself to be quite sharp and agile and exactly. quite thoughtful you well, know and, and here we got a total as you say he's a clown i think josh to borrow your expression yeah. Well, that's and I think I think that's exactly why they made Wishaw the way he was hmm. to give to give some urgency and 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 to show that that Q is an important and he's still he's still MI six he's still you know part of the you know the the Secret Service he is uh, he's an agent he's an operative he has a job to do a very important job. So, I like the Q I like I like the Q who works with Bond on the on the identigraph and, uh, yeah. and you know and, and and is in disguise like you know as a as a as a patriarch in. Uh, St. Cyril's, you know, like, yeah. that, that's my cue. Yeah, that's okay. I just I just don't like how... But anyway, so what I'm saying about Cleese, though, is being, you know, as a, he's passing the torch over, I just don't like how they instantly made him a goofball. Like, you can't take him serious. Like, I understand there's, you know, the, the whole relationship with Q and Bond is kind of funny, tongue-in-cheek, but I just felt the right off the bat with R, it didn't work. I didn't like it anyways. Um, you know what? I didn't even say what I was going to start with. Uh, I'm going to start with story. I give story five, uh, and that's I'm 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 being very polite with that. Um, the story is is the weakest part of the film, because I to be honest, most of my points you guys have already mentioned, but the writing is definitely the in my lowest mark, and it's five, and that, I'm being very generous. Um, I would say for me acting though, I gave it seven and a half because I, you're gonna laugh at me, but I actually didn't mind um, Carlisle, though his character okay. was, but he was. Uh, as bland as he was pale, mm-hmm. uh, you know. So uh, it's true, but the one thing, the, the one part I did, I did mention to Josh that I liked is that, to be honest, for a guy with that thick of a Scottish <laughs> brogue, mm-hmm. he actually did a pretty decent accent. And physically, I, I would believe him as looking Slavic because he doesn't look Scottish to me at all. You know, yeah, with a shaved head and like you know, so you know, I, I believed him, but he was uh, he was underwhelming. Uh, but again, that's the, I think that's the writing because we all know he's a good actor. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Denise, yeah. Rich, Denise Richards, man, every time she said a line, it was just like loud and it was flat. Yeah, it's just like I could almost like literally hear like you know like an echo from like a wall. Like it was just like ah, 
Yeah, yeah they fall, like, ah. her lines do fall flat. And what Josh said is perfect. I, I couldn't think of a better comparison than Charisma Carpenter's character yeah. in Buffy. Like she's yeah. just. But, yeah. but what's interesting is like obviously she, she Cordelia's she does cooler, help. Though. Yeah, Cordelia is cooler. But it's funny how she actually does actually do decent things. But her acting was not great. Um, what did she do? I mean, you guys both said exactly. that she did interesting things. I, I don't I don't see any of these interesting well, things. What does she do? She gets wet in the submarine. She wears short shorts and has a nice purple dress on at Tchaikovsky's caviar farm. Like, what does she? Well, what hey, does she do? All I said, she diffuses bombs. That's all I said. No, no. She also, she also. But she doesn't. She doesn't. Yeah, she okay. Okay. All right. Go. Okay, you have found agency. I appreciate that. Okay. Yeah. Right. Good work for you. Right. Bully for me. Um, <laughs> what about atmosphere? What'd you go for? Oh, okay. Atmosphere. Um, also, I just want to say, like, I really enjoyed um, Robbie Coltrane. I liked how they brought him back. And I was thinking, you know, for a character that they bring back, they should have brought him back more. Because, you know, the whole Pepper thing, I, I, he's annoying, and I don't think they should have brought him back in um, the, Man the Golden, Golden Gun. Gun. But I like Coltrane. Right. He was written mediocre in this, but everyone was. Uh, but I like his character, and so I did appreciate him. He is kind of funny. Uh, but I, I appreciate his character and, and sort of like how we, you know, we get to know him over, you know, that and Goldeneye. It was kind of really exciting to kind of fulfill the movies when you see like Coltrane come off that boat. Oh, with right? the machine gun? With the machine oh, yeah, gun. that was yeah, awesome. That was great. I actually really appreciate it. But then they have him put the gun down when he walks in the yeah. room and just lets Electra yeah. just shoot him dead. Yeah, that was uh, – like, They did that terribly. They did that absolutely yeah, terribly. Yeah, that was like, what are you doing? Uh, oh, so, okay, sorry. For atmosphere, I gave it six and a half. Now – I like the atmosphere. Uh, I do like how they kind of portray the different, you know, the locales. But again, like I think we were mentioning this, is there isn't like a lot of establishing shots. It's more like tight shot, like, oh, here's the here's the casino. It's a pretty tight shot of the exterior, a lot of just tight shots of interior stuff. You don't see yeah. a lot of establishing shots. And, and Compare uh, that to like the that the, the, when Bond arrives in Madrid in Free Rise Only to oh, go yeah. to Gonzalez's villa. Yeah. Like no, automatically exactly. you are in like even though they film that in Greece, you're you are in outside of Madrid in that sequence. Like you feel that. You, feel you know that. what I mean? Yeah. In our bad like these establishing shots which are very quick and very weak and just to put us there right away. Yeah. They don't let us drink no. in the scenery. No. And to think and the, the locales that they chose, like with any Bond movie, is they're always exotic and I feel they do a disservice to the locales in this film because, look, you, you're in Balboa or however you pronounce it properly. Sorry. Yeah, that's not properly uh, featured. Is, is they have that show. You said it was a Guggenheim. Well, that's yeah. pretty neat. But it's just like this one shot. It just looks like, what is that, a metallic fungus on a tree? Yeah. I'm like, yeah. What is this? It's you, true. You, and it's funny that. because Apted talked about that in the director's commentary too, but how proud he was to have, to have found this incredible architectural building and to put that in. He really wanted to feature that, but it doesn't feature. But really, no. It doesn't feature. Uh, no, it doesn't. And and so there's a lot of things. I mean, think of like it, these areas are really you know quite quite interesting locations, and I, they do a disservice to uh, not show it as much of a travel. Obviously, the the places that they use more uh, more than the others, like in uh, Baku or where they film or pretend it's Baku, they do it more there. So I'm giving it six and a half. You know what? I might just change it to a six. I don't know. Uh, this movie makes me think. Just. It's 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 a pretty weak Bond film. Yeah, I, well, I think you've said it. I mean, if we take you down to a six, you're at eighteen point five. 
Josh isn't that far ahead of you with a 19.5. I'm below you at a 15. I think we're all basically singing from the same hymn sheet. I'm actually surprised that Mount the Golden Gun got a better score than this movie in the end. Yeah. But yeah. you know what, guys? I'm not because it's about enjoyability. And yes. it's yes, also true. like it's not, you know, a high score doesn't mean it's a great film technically no, 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 or no. story wise. It just means we can sit and enjoy it more. And I've got more interest in the way the characters interact and the way I follow the story with that one than I did with this one. But yeah. hey, who knows what's ahead? You know, we still got half of these to look at, so. Yeah, Nick-Nack uh, is a way better henchman than Renard, let's just say that. Oh, yeah. Oh, and well, well, let's not forget about Bull. What was that? Yeah, don't forget about him. Well, oh, wait, so, I did. So you, <laughs> oh, what, who's that? Uh, 15, 18, 5, and 19, 5. Those are our scores. Shall we see what uh, our good grandmother thinks about this? Oh, yeah. Geo. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Let's get All the- right, boys. Here is the final. Here is the final word on the world is not enough. Hello. Hello, Granny O. Hi. How you doing? I'm talking to Scotty, am I? Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, okay. That's all I want to know. <laughs> oh, it's not, Pier- <laughs> it's not Pierce Brosnan. No. <laughs> no, it's quite true. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So, what did you think of The World Is Not Enough? This is Pierce Brosnan's No, that was one of the ones that I wasn't particularly fond of. Tell me what you didn't like about The World Is Not Enough. It took me a long time to figure out, you know, I mean, I know it was all about the oil, yeah. you know, uh, and all the rest of it, but um, I don't know if I could pick anything out in particular. It's <laughs> too, too easy, I, yeah. I, I certainly enjoyed the, the, the boats, you know, on the, on the I guess it's the river. Yeah, the Thames. That was, that was the first time that anything like that had ever been done on the River Thames. Obviously, they had filmed... Yeah, around. and it was great, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I really liked it. Yeah, me too. It was different, I guess. That's why. Yeah, it was different. Full of action, full of fun. It was a little silly, you know, when, when Bond goes under the water and fixes his tie. You saw that part? <laughs> it's true. I forgot about that. <laughs> okay. The girl. Which one? The one who kidnaps him? Electra? Yes. Yeah. No yeah, the one who who inherited her father's business and Yeah. Was the bad was the bad guy. That's right. Well she set up her father's death, didn't she? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you understand well, that? Did you get that stuff? Why she wanted revenge on her father and M. But but this this guy who he acts being a you know, terrible Yeah personal all along. Renard. Renard, is it? Yeah. Played by Robert Carlyle. Yeah. Well, now he takes that kind of role a lot. Did you like what, did you like what he was doing? Like, because uh, he, he kidnapped Electro just like, Yes, but, but, but didn't he, didn't they fall in love as well? Yeah, it was kind of, yes, that's exactly right. Like the Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. You know, I found it very confusing and very busy. I found the film to be very busy. Lots of things going on and it, like, almost for the sake of... And you, that's right, you tried to figure out what it was all about. Yes, it wasn't an easy one to figure out. 
It's true. I would say of, you know, the whole lot. Uh, it didn't appear to me, appeal to me like the other ones did. Well, you have... You put that one down at the bottom. Yeah, I think it'll be towards the bottom of my of my list as well. I enjoyed some things in it, don't get me wrong. I thought that there were some really neat and really entertaining parts to the film, but as a whole, I felt the story was more complicated than it needed to be. I, yeah, me too. Yeah. Now that's, the, that's the correct way of, of, of saying it. Well, it was so complicated, mm -hmm. you know, that you it took you you're halfway through the movie before you began to figure out what was going on. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the fact that Bond was sent to protect Elektra when in actual fact, um, when we found out that she was bad, it was just kind of like we were waiting for him to figure it all out, do you know? Yeah. And that, that made it quite boring. And that, that bit in the chair was silly. Yes, of course it was, yeah. The torture chair. Yeah. yeah. Why did you... That didn't appeal to me at all. What, what did you think of the submarine stuff at the climax? Because last time you said you liked the underwater filming in For Your Eyes Only. Yeah. Uh, did you like the underwater stuff here in the submarine? <laughs> Obviously it didn't impress me because I can't remember too much about it. Fair enough. Mm. Well, of course, one of your favorite actors is in this film, and I'm talking about John Cleese. What did you think about him? Oh, yeah, he was great. He was the new, he was being groomed for to become M, wasn't he? Yeah. M, um, Q. Um, Q, yeah. Yeah. Well, I thought that when, when I saw John Cleese, it was going to be a bit of, you know, of a laugh. Right. Well, it was, it tried to be a bit of a laugh, didn't it? Yeah. But but you know what, Granny? It didn't Ohm? work, did it? Well, it, it worked okay with him. I felt his scene was okay, but I felt that that was one of the problems with the movie. Like, it was trying to be yuck-yuck with all of its one-liners and some of its jokes, but at the same time, they were playing the story very seriously. Like, it was all about terrorism and kidnapping, and it just, it just and, didn't and, uh, Pierce Brosnan, he was really the only one, uh, the only 007 that came up with these stupid quips anyway, wasn't it? Well, yes, I think you're on... I, th I, think, I think they, something, I think they yeah. realized after they made that movie that, that that wasn't such a funny part of the movie. I think you are onto something important here because he's not Roger Moore, but the filmmakers are trying to... To trying to make him both very serious and very action-packed, and also with the humor of Roger Moore, the yeah, but it, it, it's not, it didn't work, won't work in one person. That's right. It it didn't work. But here they're trying to have the one-line of jokes and the sexual innuendo, while at the same time trying to give a really serious, you know, story yeah. about oil yeah. and I, all I, this. I I think so too. But anyway, you know it. Uh, um, all, all, all I can say is that I was, wasn't, uh, didn't get into it like mm -hmm. I did the other ones. So did you find Electra, the actress is uh, Sophie Marceau, the villain in the story, did you find her to be an interesting character? She, she was a, a sport brat. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, she was adopted as a child, wasn't she? And, and uh, this individual, he made a point of telling uh, 007 that, you know, how he was the first 
man that she ever knew. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, so she had, she didn't, uh, she had no scruples about her at all. And did that make her interesting or not interesting? No, it didn't. It didn't make her interesting at all. It, it, it made her just a copy of the guy who, who took her. Yeah, I agree with you. For instance, you, you know, the, she, she planned her father's death. I mean, kids don't do things like that. Well, kids shouldn't do things like that, but in the movies, I guess they do. Well, if you're making up a story, I suppose you could get away with it. But unless you have a, a horrible father who, you know, with a punishes you a lot. Well, that, that's the part of the story that I guess we should talk about, because she plans her father's murder because he wouldn't pay the ransom to, made her to wait. release her. Yeah. yeah, and so he listened to M, who wanted to use her as bait to pull yeah. the terrorist group that, that, that was, that was her, That's right, now it's coming back. That was her beef with M, too, wasn't that's, it? That's right, yeah, that was her whole problem. Mm -hmm. But um, the, the fact that she, that she fell in love with Renard, the kidnapper, um, was kind of, I don't know, I felt it a bit stretching, you know? Yeah, I see what you mean, right? And, and Renard himself, with the bullet in the head and the superpowers, he can't feel, you know, he can't, he doesn't have any senses like that. What did you make of that character aspect? I didn't understand that part of the story, why that was even brought into it. Yeah, well, there's not much to understand. It, it's just that he was shot and his brain is going to become progressively worse until he dies. But Is that, where, is that what happened? Yeah, but until he dies... I missed that part. Well, that's what he the doctor shot. says. Who, do you mean... When was he shot? Well, that's Before he took her or after? Exactly. But you could have missed it easily, I think, uh, because yeah. it was... Well, I sure, I sure did. Yeah, I mean, I think you'd be forgiven for that because the information was yeah. just dropped on the audience that this is where this relationship between she and he came from or comes from. This is where Renard and... and uh, uh, Electra come from, and we just have to go along with it that the, he got shot during the MI6 uh, operation to save her, and that that shot has left his brain uh, progressively damaged with no sense of touch or feel. I mean, it's all very stupid, really. And, and I mean, was was there was there a reason for um, he couldn't get any medication or anything for it? I don't know. I don't, brain? I, I don't know what the I don't know what the medication <laughs> is for a, a bullet in the head. <laughs> well, the fact that he survived, there must have been some damage yeah. done, wasn't it? I guess so, but I don't know. I mean, he survived and escaped, so I suppose if he had, he could have gotten medication. But I don't. I don't see <laughs> oh, him walking that's into. That's right. I remember now. There, yeah. Wasn't there something there? But he was pr pronouncing. The Mandela oblongata, which is that exactly. bump in the back of your head. That's right. That's what the doctor was explaining to Bond after he slept with her. Yeah. Mm. Or maybe it was before oh. he, I don't know. Remember he went to the doctor to get the all clear for his shoulder injury? Or his, uh, yeah. what, what was it? Was yeah, it? well, he didn't go to her. He, yeah. he talked her into it. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess he did. He, uh, he worked his magic, the magic penis. Yeah, that's right. <laughs>
Uh, there must be a magic one or something. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> so what about Denise Richards? What about her? Did you like her role as the, the girl who shows up uh, and she's a, she's a nuclear physicist or a nuclear scientist that dismantles bombs? And she, What do you think of her? See, I, I really can't say because I don't remember her now. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the other girl that he's running around with. Okay. Remember, he goes to the pipeline and he meets one of the scientists. Oh yes, now I know. She was she was um, a head honcho or some sort. Yeah, but we we never really find out what she's doing there. No, no, that's quite true. Yeah. She was bossing him around, though. Yeah, she was bossing because everybody he was, around. He was supposed to be a scientist, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, he was operating. Or trying to pretend to be one. That's right. Be between you and I. I never got nearly as much from that movie as you did. Well, don't don't confuse understanding with enjoyment, okay? <laughs> I, right, right on. I mean, I might have I might have understood more because I, you know, I, I'd seen it before, or I'd studied into it, or I read something. But that don't mean I enjoyed it <laughs> any more than you did. <laughs> true. How true. <laughs> I don't think we need to talk yeah. about this film anymore anyway. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I didn't enjoy it that much anyway. What's the next one? Oh, no, you don't know yet. We don't know yet, but I'm, I'm glad that you're eager to get on to the next one. That, that's, that bodes well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'll, I will, I'll make it known and note it that the world is not enough will be down at the bottom or near the bottom of your list. Right, because when I, even when it started, I thought, I don't remember this at all, so I couldn't have been terribly impressed with it. Nah, well, let's leave it at that then and punctuate okay. our conversation <laughs> right, <dear. laughs> on that positive point. <laughs> okay, right. down at the bottom. Good talking to you. We love you. Right, you bye too. Bye-bye, darling. Bye. So there you go. There's our grandmother's opinion on, uh, on that one. <laughs> I love how she totally didn't even remember Denise Richards. <laughs> I know. And I wish I could blame that on the fact that she's 93 years old, but oh, I just don't think we can. Yeah, no. Oh, that girl. Yeah, that one. Oh, yeah. Now that you've explained it to me, I remember he was walking around with uh, with a couple. Yeah, but this this girl. Yeah, so down at the bottom of her list and probably down at the bottom of ours as well. Possibly. Or near the bottom. Or near the bottom. Yeah, near so, the bottom. Are we going to talk about how nice everyone was dressed, at least? We're going to talk. I think we should talk about how nice Pierce Brosnan is dressed. What I'm going to try to do is, you know, for these Bond films we got uh, where an actor doubles up, I'm going to try to look at, you know, just the, the style of the film a little more. You know, Correct. we did do this with Goldfinger. So. We know we talked about the costumery in Goldfinger. We did a little bit more looking at the costumery in uh, The Mound of the Golden Gun, I think. And, mm -hmm. you know, we do sometimes talk about this as part of the aesthetic for atmosphere. But I thought because we did a little bit of a quiz with Goldfinger that I would uh, that I would surprise you guys with a quiz here. Although it's, I guess it's not a surprise. I told you it was coming. But you don't know what the questions are. There so, you go. So there's, a, there's an aspect of surprise to it. Right. So what I've got here, guys, for you, and you can phone each other as friends, okay? Phone each other. Okay. I've got a number of different items that Pierce Brosnan wears because, let's face it, he's a very good-looking man. He looks great in this film. Sure. 
And thanks to the uh, the great website, The Suits of James Bond by Matt Spazier, Whoa. who's a New York-based visual designer, and he's also a podcaster. He does another podcast with Pete Booker called From Tailors with Love. It's really quite cool, all about Bond style. It's not like what we're doing reviewing the film. Like films, Josh but... should be a Hi, it's, it's quite interesting, but I've uh, used some of the info from uh, uh, this website, and uh, I thought what I would do is give you an outfit, and you try to tell me where in the film he wears it, all right? Sure. Oh, I think I'll do okay on this, actually. Okay, let's see how we do. Uh, you and Josh can work together on this, or I can take answers from both of you and give you scores, and you can compete. How would you like to do it? What do you, th- what do you think? Collaborative? Sure, why not? Right. The charcoal worsted serge suit with royal blue Oxford shirt and dark blue and brown tie. That would be the opening. Yes. Boom, nailed it. Well done. Okay, let's move on. So you guys are one for one. The charcoal double-breasted overcoat. What tie? Mm-hmm. I can tell you, but it might give away another Sir, question. It's, just think of overcoat. What was that? Sir Robert King's wedding. Uh, wedding? wedding? Oh my god! Funeral. You really got you really got out of there, man. Uh, Sir Robert King's funeral is absolutely correct. Two for two. Because remember, I pointed out I yes, like, you like, you I, like I, I like I like his overcoat. Yeah, there. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Moving on, and these are not necessarily in chronological order. In I order, imagine. Yeah. Yep. Midnight blue mohair wool dinner suit with matching bow tie. Midnight blue. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking black, but it's very, very dark. Uh, Zukowski's Casino. Boom, Josh. Well done. Proving that you're not just hanging off jo- uh, Jeff's coattails here. Yeah. Well done. Black charcoal. Okay, now now I'm gonna come. I'm gonna come out with with a tricky one here. Okay. Right, I'm not asking enough. you about the suit. I'm just asking you about a tie. Oh Ooh. yeah, I know the ties. So that's fine. Black necktie with square motif in orange, gray, and red. I don't. Uh, sorry, say the colors again. Sorry, I totally just had to sketch my brain there. Black necktie with square motif in orange, gray, and red. So you're picturing a necktie with little squares. Uh, orange, oh. gray, and red. Was Is that the one he was wearing in the boat chase? It is. Well done. Oh. It is. Way to go. And of course... Remember, under the water, he tightens that tie in a stupid little move. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> what a re- underwater. What? That's I know. Not I know. Underwater, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay, let's move on to this one then. Cream herringbone linen suit with French blue Oxford shirt. Uh, the maiden's tower when he's held hostage. And Got then- it. Well yeah. done. Well yeah. done. An easy well, one, I, I think. I think that was my favorite uh, look, actually, in the movie. Okay, well, try this one out. The, the Cheviot tweed charcoal suit with a black wool knit tie. Uh, now here, Cheviot tweed. We're, we're talking a different fabric here now. This isn't a lighter. This is a heavier suit. Cheviot uh, tweed charcoal suit. I was gonna say um, the. Uh, You're collaborative. I have to take. A, I have to take the answer. Where oh, I was gonna say the at the uh, the castle in Scotland. Jeff, you are correct. It is indeed. Mi six you know headquarters. Funny, I remember. Here, yeah. I remember him sitting back, 
with, with the uh, that really fashionable um, the sling, and I was like, that's a really nice charcoal jacket. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what he had out. That's what he had on underneath the charcoal oh. overcoat. Uh, okay, okay, yes. okay, yep, yep. Now, bonus. Can you tell me something about Cheviot wool? And no, Jeff, it's got nothing to do with Chevrolets before you ask. Damn it. I know you wanted to go there with a pun, so I stopped you in advance. Uh, okay, fine. <laughs> Too many puns. Can or you tell me it. anything about Cheviot wool? Uh, it is not native to Azerbaijan? Uh, okay, yes, but I'm not going to give you a point for that. No. Okay, fine. Like sheep in Scotland? Is there a front of sheep in Scotland? It is. Uh-huh. Can you I'm tell me the where, where the name comes from? It comes from a breed of sheep located Chevy? in Northumberland and the Scottish borders, just up the road from where I am, yeah. Mm -hmm. Ah! Uh, sheep that is reared not uh, for dual purpose, for food and for wool. Ah. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Look, guys, I can't believe this. This is going way better than I thought it would for you. <laughs> i got to be honest. I'm you. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. Do you know what? Yeah. I, I, think I, I think I think we're just going to do this every feature, okay? I think I'm, so. I just think, because you guys are really impressing me here with your sartorial knowledge and your observance in these films. I got two left. Okay, yeah. Okay. And, and I saved the trickiest ones. Mm -hmm. You think Perhaps. Tricky. I think they are, but you guys are so, so good. <laughs> I'm so modest. Okay, what's up? Navy semi-solid suit with a red tie and white shirt. Oh, uh, ca uh, the caviar. Oh, wow. Guys, this is great. Yeah. Yep. Here we are at number nine. Nine of nine. Can you get it? The gray pick-and-pick pick suit, white shirt, and blue-brown tie. Pipeline? Oh, no, no. When he rides in Azerbaijan. Unbelievable. <laughs> you got it. Woo! Nine for nine, when he first meets Elektra in Azerbaijan, following the funeral. That's right. That's right. Immediately preceding the ski scene. Nice work, guys. You know, this makes me feel like we should do more talking about style on the show. I agree. Because it was it's clearly something you guys are switched on to noting. Well, to be oh, honest, Brosnan play. wears a hell of a suit. And he so does. I pay attention. He looks now, great. I'll, I'll be honest. This, it was about 50-50. Uh, I was paying attention to him and Sophie Marceau in that red getup. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Although I do think I do actually think putting my heterosexuality on the line, Brosnan's the sexiest thing about this film. He is. I would agree with you actually. I mean, Sophie Marceau know, that, is deeply attractive. Know, that, that bald Robert Carlyle with, with, <laughs> yeah. with that with slavic accent and lazy eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, man. I, I think he's up there. <laughs> and Goldie, he, he, oh, he's yeah. a charmer. Yeah, man. With his, what was that, a Louis Vuitton, like, gold uh, briefcase or something? <laughs> Whatever that was, Whatever yeah. Whatever that was. To be looks, fair, though, actually, uh, Sophie actually wardrobe was pretty awesome. It was, it was I kind of like how she went from, like, a European kind of look uh, by the time of her reveal to much more of an Eastern kind of look with all of her flowing dresses yeah, flowing and stuff dresses like that. Stuff, yeah. Like, I found that was a very good evolution in terms of, uh, of the clothes and her character. <laughs> so, guys, here we are. We've got through it. What do you think Fleming would have made of this film? It has no source material apart from one little bit that I'm going to share from Honor Majesty's Secret Service. But what do you think he would have thought of this? Uh, I was going to say that I think he might have found the Electra character kind of up his alley in terms of how he wrote 
female characters. Yeah. But um, and I think th- I understand with the, where they're trying to go with Renard with the bullet in the head. They wanted to make like a Flamingian villain, you know, with that classic like uh, flaw or some sort of weird disfigurement yeah, that like he always star has or something. Or, yeah. you, know, you know what I mean? But. I, I I don't think he would buy the bullet to the head no. unless he heard about like the Phineas Gage story about how like you know this 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 really nice guy or this worker got an iron r- railroad rod stuck in his head and basically it changed his whole personality completely. Um, oh yeah, right. But I I, I I don't know. I don't think overall he, uh, he he would have enjoyed it. Oh yeah, no, I I don't think so either. I think really, he you really do have to peel back the layers to find something he would like. And you might be right, Josh. He might find something interesting in that character. Yes, I think but he would find no. Zukovsky's character interesting as an addition oh, to the story. Oh yeah, I I would I, think I so. because he really is a character. Even though Zukovsky is again another one of those. They kind of Zukovsky to me of the Brazen era is like the Karen Bay. The Columbo, the Draco, the Marcons, the, the Marcons, Draco, you know, of like the story. Well, yes. What yeah. Think, what do you think you'd think of R? That's a good point. Um, because Q was never written quite the way Q is in the films, in the stories, Q branch was a part of it, but not quite the uh, exaggerated hyperbole, you know, the, the hyperbolic sort of sense. I think that he would think it kind of kind of whimsical and stupid yes yeah ephemeral like, maybe like a chitty chitty bang bang yeah i guess <laughs> well look guys as as i stated there is no there's no story that was written by fleming with this title the characters do not exist the, the plot does not exist it it of course, produced and written as a screenplay original out with the Fleming oeuvre. However, the title is derived from a Fleming novel because, exactly. as you already said, Jeff and Josh, it is the family motto of the James Bond, the world is not enough. And so what I thought I would do is find that moment from the canon in On Her Majesty's Secret Service where we learn about oh. that and listen to Bond for just a page or two talk about his heritage because it's the only connection I could find to this oh, film. Fair. All right. Okay. Let's, let's have it. Yeah. So, Josh, you'll remember this um, when we did our series. This is when Bond has gone into the College of Arms doing his research to take on the role of Sil- Hillary Bray, and he's met the very colorful character Griffin Orr. Right. He cleared his throat. The man looked up, and the Pickwickian Pansnay's face broke into an absent smile. He got to his feet and made a little bow. Bond, he said in a voice that creaked like the lid of an old chest. Commander James Bond. Now then, Bond, Bond, Bond. I think I've got you here. He had kept his finger at the open page of the vast tome. He now sat down, and Bond followed suit. Yes, yes, yes. Very interesting indeed. Very but I fear I have to disappoint you, my dear sir. The title is extinct. Actually, it's a baronetcy. Most desirable, but no doubt we can establish a relationship through a collateral branch. Now then, he put his pince-nez very close to the page. We have some ten different families of Bonds. The important one ended with Sir Thomas Bond, a most distinguished gentleman. He resided in Peckham. He had, alas, no issue. The pince-nez gleamed encouragingly at Bond. No legitimate issue, that is. Of course, in those days, <clears throat> my morals were inclined to be laxer. Now, if we could establish some connection with Peckham... I have no connection with Peckham. Now, listen, I... Gryffindor held up his hand. He said severely, Where did your parents come from, if I may ask? That, my dear fellow, was the first step in the chain. Then we can go back from there. Somerset House, parish records, old tombstones. 
No doubt with a good old English name like yours, we'll get somewhere in the end. Oh, my father was a Scot and my mother was a Swiss, but the point is, quite, quite, you're wondering about the cost of the research. That, my dear fellow, we can leave until later, but now tell me, from whereabouts in Scotland did your father come? That's important. The Scottish records are, of course, less fully documented than those from the South. In those days, I'm forced to admit that our cousins across the border were little more than savages. Gryffindor bobbed his head politely. He gave a fleeting and, to Banzai, rather false smile. Very pleasant savages, of course, very brave and all that, but alas, very weak at keeping up their records. More useful with the sword than with the pen, if I may say so. But perhaps your grandparents and their forebears came from the south. My father came from the highlands, from near Glencoe. But look here. But Gryffindor was not to be diverted from the scent. He pulled another thick book towards him. His finger ran down the page of small print. Hmm, <laughs> Yes, oh, not very encouraging, I fear. Burke's General Armory gives more than ten different families bearing your name, but alas, nothing in Scotland. Not that that means there is no Scottish branch. Now perhaps you have other relatives living. So often in these matters, there is some distant cousin. Gryffindor reached into the pocket of the purple-flowered silk waistcoat that buttoned almost up to his neat bow tie, fished out a small silver snuff box, offered it to Bond, and then took himself two tremendous sniffs. He exploded twice into an ornate bandana handkerchief. Bond took this opportunity. He leaned forward and said distinctly and forcibly, I didn't come here to talk about myself. It's all about Blofeld. What's that? Gryffindor looked at him in astonishment. You're not interested in your line of descent? He held up an admonishing finger. Do you realize, my dear fellow, that if we are successful, you may be able to claim direct, he hesitated, or at any rate collateral descent from an ancient baronetcy, founded back to his volume he went, peered at it, founded in the year 1658. Does it not excite you that the possible ancestor of yours was responsible for the name of one of the most famous streets in the world? I refer, of course, to Bond Street. That was Sir Thomas Bond, Baronet of Peckham in the county of Surrey, who, as you're no doubt aware, was comptroller of the household of Queen Mother Henrietta Maria. The street was built in 1886, 1686, and its associations with famous British folk are, of course, well known. The first Duke of St. Albans, the son of Neil Gwynne, lived there, as did Lawrence Stern. Boswell's famous dinner party took place there, with Johnson, Reynolds, Goldsmith, and Garrick being present. Dean Swift and Canning were residents at a different time, and it's intriguing to recall that while Lord Nelson lived at number 141, Lady Hamilton lived at number 145. And this, my dear sir, is the great thoroughfare of which you bear the name. Do you still wish to establish no claim to this vastly distinguished connection? No? The bushy eyebrows raised in astonishment were now lowered in further admonishment. This is the very warp and woof of history, my dear Commander Bond. He reached for another volume that lay open in his desk, and that he had obviously prepared for Bond's delectation. The coat of arms, for instance, surely that must concern you, be at least of profound interest to your family, to your own children. Yes, here we are. Argent on a chevron sable three bezants. He held up the book so Bond could see. A bezant is a golden ball, as I'm sure you know. Three balls. Bond commented dryly. Well, that's certainly a valuable bonus. The irony was lost on Gryffindor. But I'm afraid I'm still not interested, and I have no relatives, no children. Now, about this man, Gryffindor broke in excitedly. And this charming motto of the line, the world is not enough. You do not wish to have the right to it. It's an excellent motto, which I shall certainly adopt, said Bond curtly. He looked pointedly at his watch. Now, I'm afraid we really must get down to business. I have to report back to my ministry. And the scene goes on. But there it is, the only little bit. Now, I read a lot, I know, leading up to that. But I love that character of Gryffindor. And he is really interesting. Just coming back to the story, having not read it for a couple of years, it's, it's great to have him back to life in that scene. Yeah, Gryffindor is cool. Is there a guy named Slytherin yeah, as well? Yeah, is there a guy named Slytherin no, or no. whatever? But I, I appreciate your speed in getting that up. 
<laughs> You're very welcome. No, I, that's great. That's, that's a great scene, though. Yeah, that is cool. Because I remember there was a scene, there was like Gryffindor, and then there was also like uh, Sable, Sable Basilisk. Basilisk. <laughs> yeah, they're and, all and in there. Yeah. Hillary Bray. And yeah. the movie seems to basically call <laughs> Sable, like this, like Sable Basilisk is a title given to Sir Hillary Bray in the movie. That's uh, right, kind of yeah. Actually. Yeah, it is actually. You're right. But there's a lot of uh, Harry Potter-esque stuff going on in that scene. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> anyway. Well, guys, look, we've reached that moment. We've reached the moment of decision for our next film. How are you Ooh. feeling? Uh, uh, honestly, I'm going to stop guessing because it always surprises me. I'm yeah, gonna of course. Say, I'm going to say yeah. it's a Roger Moore. <laughs> well, I've stopped guessing like Actually, Josh you know as well. I'm gonna, no, I'm going to say it's a Connery. I'm going to say Dr. No. Okay, All right. Going right back to the beginning I'm, with number one. I'll, I'll keep my ideas to myself. I, I, I don't want to jinx it. Yeah, do that. No. Well, BFG, open up those casinos doors, would you please? Opened. Good. And here we... <laughs> creaking. Your casino yes. doors creak. It's an old casino. Right. Now, before we get started, do you see anybody in the casino with purple-tinted lenses? Uh, no, unfortunately. Okay. okay. But Josh, he's wearing the same dress as Sophie Marceau. Is that weird? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, well, no, because no one can see under it, so that's fine. But Jeff has gold teeth, so... Yeah. <laughs> do you? No. Okay, well, I had to ask, you know, I don't know. <laughs> are, are you the one with the glasses, Scott? Uh, not on today, no, I'm afraid not. But here we are, inside wheel spinning. Will your dreams come true, gentlemen? Will my dream come true? We'll have to wait and see. This fickle wheel we've called our friend now for 13 episodes, what will it deliver us unto? It's delivering us unto... Bond 13. James Bond 13. It is Octopussy, ladies and gentlemen. Cool. Roger Moore. Good call on your first call anyway. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. Black 13. Nice. Good, good. Back into the Roger Moore swing of things. Mm hmm. After being away for a while. We do, yes. We do return to Maud Adams, that's right. What year is Octopussy again? 1983. It's the penultimate Roger Moore signature. And for those who are fans of uh, 80s movies, particularly uh, those who are fans of 80s movies, it has one of the great 80s villain actors in the, in the film, uh, Stephen Burkhoff, who everyone knows from right. his picture in Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, he plays, a, a, I believe, a substantial role as a villain in this movie. Mm -hmm. You speak the truth. I'd forgotten about that, though. But yes, you're yeah. right. I'm really looking forward to going back to this one because I remember last time I did watch it thinking, perhaps for completest sake, oh, I'll watch this now. I remember thinking, I really like this, but are those thoughts going to ring true when we go to study it together? Let's see. Um, final thoughts on The World Is Not Enough, guys. I'll start. You know, there are some really likable things in this film. I've had enough. There are some likable things in this film. Brosnan is likable in this film. The actresses are likable in the film. The roles maybe less so but Brosnan continues to be hammered out or t continues to be hammered with really poor scripts and that is bringing down the enjoyment factor for me what do you say Jeff uh, I would agree with you on that uh, Brosnan always seems to keep his head above water unless he's underwater facing his tie um, with <laughs> these right. scripts and yeah. these films uh, he always continues to be the strongest which is good because considering he's the star he always can he always continues to put put up a, a good show um, and unfortunately with this one even with the the caliber of actors uh, obviously not including Denise Richards um, it was mediocre at best 
like I said, it's like a hipster hamburger. Uh, the bun at the top was good. The middle and the end, soggy and uh, forgettable. And Josh? Um, well, you said, that you said you've had enough. Jo- uh, Jeff and I both yeah. worked out our food-related metaphors there. Yeah, got- that was my succinct... Uh, <laughs> Okay. Points on the rules on that. Right. Well, we'll get you back here for Octopussy soon. Uh, before that, though, Josh uh, and Jeff, we will have another bonus episode. We're going to get into some of the literary source material stuff for the films that we've recently watched. Since our first Gun Barrel bonus, we'll go down the literary Gun Barrel one more time now and share some more features of the story aspects that Fleming links to the films that we've recently done. Yeah, absolutely. And our social media is up. We got our, our Facebook page. Please check it out. Uh, offer suggestions. I'm, we're trying, I'm, I'm getting some time off so I can put some more posting in there. Um, we're all admins on it, so we'll get more posts in there as soon as possible. We got our bondbynumbers.com website uh, domain to check out. Um, it's a landing spot for uh, picking up the episodes. So, yeah, check out the Free Rise Only Pop podcast and the previous one, uh, The Man with the Golden Gun. Do check that out. And also check us out on i. You can download us on iTunes, Spotify. On you can Spotify. stream us on Stitcher or TuneIn. You can find us all over the place. But uh, yeah. give us an email, uh, bondbynumbers3 at gmail.com, and we will uh, call you out on the show. We've been getting some nice reports so far, so thank you very much for those of you who have, uh, have been giving us likes and, and quips. But if you'd like us to feature you on the show, give us some comments or some suggestions, and by all means, do that. And uh, give us a nice review, and we'll send you out some merchandise. Right, guys, good show. Uh, Looking forward to our next one. So we'll get you back here for Octopussy following a brief stop uh, down the literary gun barrel. Great. It'll be an all-time high. Let's (laughs) Let's hope so.